In this episode, I'm joined by Wendy and Ronnie Barry, who reached out to me to discuss their quest to find the reincarnation of their sons, who in 1997 tragically died in a car crash. Upon learning of the deaths of their sons Andy and Bobby, the Barrys immediately turned to the Tibetan Book of the Dead and entered the world of the supernatural as they followed the instructions within to guide their sons through the after-death realms. The Barrys then vowed to find their sons' next lives, embarking on an international search and recruiting the aid and support of High Lamas, Tukus, Seers, Channelers and more. Wendy and Ronnie also reveal their plan for their next incarnations and discuss their history as prominent members of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. So without further ado, Wendy and Ronnie Barry. Hi. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice, nice to, to meet, meet you, you too. too. We're so excited to meet you. Likewise, I've read your book and uh, wow, fascinating. And uh, also I spoke to Lama David Curtis. He spoke very uh, fondly of you. Yeah, we love him. He's a good, really good friend of ours. I'd like to focus on the book and focus on the events from where the book began. But I'm uh, well aware, having done a little bit of looking around, that your uh, the interesting parts of your life do not begin at the point the book begins. Would that be fair to say? That would be real fair. Yes, we had quite a journey. And we have another book I'll send you that we wrote already. I couldn't find a copy of it, but I found, I found lots of references to it. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, there's pages, actually. Yeah. And but anyway, I'll be glad to send that to you. You know, get it in a couple of weeks. And it's as good a book as this one that you read as far as the, the story goes, the adventure. And it tells at the end, actually, it tells when we got together and the devotion we had to our children that we really left out in one life to the next. We didn't say all the hockey teams and baseball teams and soccer teams that we coached and how involved we were in in the, the and skateboarding the and the community and stuff like that. That was all in um, the Brotherhood Hashish. And just as a side note, um, a lot of anything you read about the Brotherhood online is mostly totally wrong, which is why we came out of the closet, made the movie Orange Sunshine, and then wrote the book Brotherhood Hashish, because there was so much we had left because of the indictments. And then when everything that all got cleared up, when we came back, we couldn't believe how people had actually taken on our persona, done things that we would have never done that were documented as us. And so we were shocked and yeah. we had to, we had to come out in really in defense of our reputations because we were so proud of what we had done or not proud, whatever, we, we were so devoted to what we did uh, for our, for the good of all mankind. And then to have all these and, and devious did, did, I don't know, you know, it's a funny thing because people, they seem to jump right into this, but the real, the reason we were able to know about the Bardos, know the path and to be able to even have an idea to search for the children, because when we were taking all that LSD, our whole deal was going out in nature, laying down and leaving our body and going through the Bardos. And as we went through them, we woke up in the clear light. That was our deal. We learned the Bardos like they're the back of our hand. So when the boys died, we knew they existed. We knew that they were the same ones. And then that's why we decided to go after them, which right. you read Wendy said the second day when we were sitting down there. She said, you know, even though we weren't 
practicing or too much involved in religion other than being Dallas and reading the boys' prayers from that little Dallas book. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's kind of like the same thing like David. What we learned way back then ended up being uh, critical in the foundation rest of, for the rest of our life. Yeah. And then we, you know, moved back into society. Nobody really knew anything about us and all that, those years. And at that time, there was no such thing as microdosing. <laughs> and and 10 years ago today we wouldn't be telling the story right the, the atmosphere still wasn't right yet what do you mean by that could can we include some of this uh can we assume the interview is beginning now or would you rather i don't include what some of what we said already i don't know i don't know where it's going to go because it always comes back to it we trust you to do I, we couldn't believe david for the lsd thing how it was so consistent throughout his whole talk <laughs> we, we talked to him a long time after yeah, that and yeah. he laughed with him and and it was a fun he's time. a great guy so I don't really? care. Um, whatever you want to do, uh, yeah. you know, like you said, let's just go into it. If anything comes up, well, we have to make a reference. Yeah. Fine. We're not hiding anything. We're not ashamed of anything. Uh, we feel with with the our our new book, from one life to the next, we we do have a much larger demographic, and we don't want anything to be tainted with we're burnouts or some hallucinating or some stupid oh, yeah. thing. We don't want that to 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 taint. Uh, the the message of our book so uh that would that that would be our only reservation other than that we i you know i'm so happy for what we did and if i had it to do all over again i would do it the same we do keep falling into it. we had a radio interview laguna talks and the guy came on and we said well yeah you can talk whatever and he says okay we have ron and wendy he said they're they're famous icons in laguna beach from the brotherhood of eternal love i mean he just started it that way <laughs> so you know to people like you and people that we're around it's okay because they understand you know that we learned what we did way back there and that gave us you know the the lifelong uh, conviction of our beliefs and that was what really egged us on to try to find the boys um, but then other people might not. So, you know, whatever. We've pretty much come to take that to the we don't care. But it's pretty much accepted now that people can have religious experience with psychedelics. Ten years ago, it wasn't. Yeah. So feel that it's basically okay. And we want to be friendly with everybody. We don't want to isolate ourselves. And and it's still really scary to some people. It, because they're so terrified to let go. They, they couldn't imagine it. And consequently, they shy away. So and we I think our book is very friendly to bring them into the concept that, you know, like we said, well, maybe everybody doesn't, but some people do. And, and that's our message in this book. The response has been unbelievable, a lot yeah. different than our first book. People, they, they, they don't know what to say. They tell you that. And we've had people read it and say, oh, my God, I got my mala back out. I'm doing my chance. I can't believe my one girlfriend said, oh, yeah, I was I do my one own money, pay me home one mala every day. And sometimes I think, oh, God, one mala. And then I think about your hundred thousand. I'm all you know. And I always tell people that a lot of people have the concept and it's even taught the long journey to the meditation cushion. My idea is run run to that meditation cushion be so thankful that you yeah, we even don't think know that's that. all true yeah we don't think that that's true and we think it's a it's a real negative thing to put forth of the long journey it's not a long journey and and whatever the journey is run and get there as fast as you can and savor those that moment as long as you can 
because uh, you're immersed in something that's so beautiful and real mm. and can <laughs> change your daily life. And also my feelings are nothing should be an isolated incident in your life. It should be incorporated into your, your every moment of consciousness. You don't have your meditation and then you come out and have your life. You're, that is merged. So every moment is a constant conscious effort to, to, to be here now and be real and be honest and compassionate, all that kind of thing. Well, yes, I'd love to start diving into that because there's, I think some of the aspects of your book, it's not, it doesn't surprise me that it's had such a um, strong reception uh, because the threads of your own personal journeys, also the very touching and potent, uh, I suppose, transpersonal experiences you had. And also, I think the other aspect of it is the personal relationships that you formed along the way. And you bring out those relationships, I think, very well in the book, the different lamas and um, uh, people that you met uh, along the journey. So uh, the thing about your past that you're mentioning there uh, that I brought up and that the, this guy at Laguna Talks brought up as well is, of course, people are going to find it. If they Google around, they're going to find it. And people right, are fascinated yes. by it. And the other thing is that, yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't have the negative stigma now that it did. And many, many of the, um, if you want, uh, straight-laced, apparently straight-laced Western Buddhist teachers and so on are have, uh, more and more over the last 10 years, as you say, admitted to copious amounts of LSD use being pivotal in their becoming you know religious leaders essentially later on right, so right i think it is more mainstream but we don't have to dwell on it that's fair enough so is there anything worth um maybe we'll talk about it in another interview by itself but is there anything you want to say about that uh before we we, we pivot into the book i don't think it's so important about our history before but where it comes up and of course you would probably agree is when the bardos how did we know about yeah. the bardos see that's something that 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 was where some of my question other than that it really doesn't have a lot to do with it right did you use um i'm looking around here for it i have it somewhere uh timothy leary's uh psychedelic um book of the dead where's that you know the it's, one. It's the Tibetan book. Yeah, the Tibetan. Yeah. It's red. It's red. And with black. Uh, yes, we, Yeah, we did at first. That's what you read, and then they had the psychedelic prayer book, and right. uh, that. But it came out later. That at came first, out, we only yeah. had the experience book, yeah. and it's not a complete Bardo teaching. They take you to Amitabha and the heart chakra, and they do some things, and it works. And they also, it's a real. It explains everything about the psychedelic experience. What the, you know, most of the book is telling you what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. Right. But when it came to actually going out in nature and taking large doses of acid and using prayers to center ourselves and to keep expanding, the prayer book was awesome. But it was a good year before that came out. Right. And uh, the other thing is the the Tao Te Ching is actually, if you really look at it, those are Zokshin prayers. Those are the quick yeah, path. They really are absorption boosters. And, and we one. we still to this day love the Tao Te Ching. And uh, that's what we read to our boys. That was our religion. And it was funny for us to transition into Tibetan Buddhism so uh, completely mm. and mm. then revisit the Tao Te Ching and realize, oh my God, those are Zogchen prayers, no doubt. They're the, the fast path. And uh, in a nutshell, so... 
that that was interesting. And so yes, we love all those books. The uh, the the Tibetan book, uh, psychedelic uh, Tibetan book, the big one is a, you read that before you go on your session. That's that's some you know preparation. And then once you go on your session, that's too much for when you're so expanded. Uh, that's where the prayer book, and even then, the prayer book is really pretty much only accessed if you, if need be. If you're fine, you're fine. Hmm. You know, but don't go dragging yourself through the. Yeah, we learned to skip the lower Mardo prayers, yeah. <laughs> and we we learned in our session that it, those are great if you want to be liberated, if that's what it takes. But if it if that's not necessary, why go there? Yeah. So we did learn to shortcut that and not go into the to the lower chakras or the yeah. or the you know the wrathful deities because after a few times we find it not necessary. Yeah. Why do why go there? Uh, and also when we read the boys through the Tibetan Book of the Dead and through the Bardos, we did not take them to the hell realms because we already knew they were there. We could feel them. They were, we could hear him laughing. We wouldn't do that to him in life. And so why would we do that to him in death? So we, we didn't, we didn't want to make them suffer or, you know, have a bummer. Even if we could bring them out of it in the end, we didn't think. Well, the prayers are to liberate you, but you know, yeah, it just, we just not found it not necessary. Yeah. So we didn't even go there with them in the Bardos. We passed. And we don't know, too, what the llamas are going to think about it when they read it. You know, they're all going to read it, are the ones that helped us. But nonetheless, they'll just have to agree that we were on our own. Yeah, we were, we were on our American own. American white people without any help at all. And we did the best we could. With the, with the knowledge with that we, we had that been we really blessed with. And at that time, we realized and were so grateful and thankful. I mean, it could, could make me cry how thankful I am for my past experiences to give me the strength and the knowledge to have to dive deep within myself to bring out my past incarnations of a Lama to be able to read those prayers in the proper way uh, to the boys. I had to be the Lama I once was, so. That's something I don't think you include in the book. This, no. I, this can you say a bit more about that? About our past? No, about the, the sense of you being a Lama in a past life. You had to read the prayers yourself. Without yeah, help. because we had we realized we didn't have a Lama and we we are firm believers in millions and millions of lifetimes. We really do believe at one time everyone was our child. Everyone was our husband. Everyone was we were husband. We were wife. We were not always the king and the queen. We were the perpetrator, consequently making all this karma. Um, and so when it came time where we needed a llama and we didn't have a llama, I, I had to think to myself, well, I'm sure at one time I was a llama and I had to just really go into deep meditation and find my inner llama to be able to responsibly read the, the Ardo prayers to my boys in a, in a way that it wasn't coming from their mom. It was just as if a llama was sitting there reading to them. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't interfere with my own personal feelings and br bring them down or bring them uh, back. I wanted them to look forward to their next incarnation and have it be a better, you know, you always want a better incarnation for your children. Like you want a better life for them 
in this life, you try to give them a better life than you had or whatever, or, or at least as good if you had a really good life. And, uh, and then when they die, you want them to achieve a, a, a good incarnation. So that's what I had to do is just be my previous Lama and read to them from coming from there, not coming from my mom, you know, I'm your mom, I miss you so much, I love you so much, I'm going to do this because I love you so much, I had to do it because that's what you do. And that's what they needed. And that's actually a point that I think we'll come to a little bit later, I'd like to now start at May 1997. Uh, but you do make the point later that it was important for you to, in a certain sense, uh, not color that uh, the Bardo instructions with your own personal grief and sadness right. that, that you emphasize that was very important. So I think we'll come to that later. So let's start at the beginning of your book and the, the start of this particular tale. May 1997, you write, the sound of the doorbell ringing woke us at 3.30 in the morning. Ronnie and I both sat up, but I got out of bed first. Something must be wrong. Why else would someone be here? When I opened the door, a man stood outside. Are you Mrs. Barry? A heavy mist dimmed the light to where I could barely see. I stepped onto the porch. Yes, I'm Mrs. Barry. He fanned two driver's license-like playing cards and asked, are these your boys? When I answered yes, he said, they're dead, and handed me their licenses. Time stood still. Can you tell us a little bit about that day and what happened on May 10th, 1997? Uh, now, you know, a lot happened. We, we did a lot of backlogging in the book, as you noticed, because we started right out. Um, um, we had quite a big day, really. Well, I might back up a little bit because Wendy, okay, here's what I'm trying to remember this story, but here's what this story is. Wendy had usually, she was a, a HHP and she had clients and usually she had three a day. Well, for some reason, all three called in the morning early and canceled. That's first cancellations and I had ever had in my life. So, so we were, we thought, okay, well, we always love taking the boys to Pasadena, India, Indian restaurant. They loved it. It was like our thing to do. And Wendy said, well, I'll take you all, you know, to the passage to India. I'll treat. I'll treat. And we were working on Andy's car. I had, well, I, we were putting a new clutch in. So it was torn apart and they only had Bobby's car and then we were in our car. So we followed them to the restaurant around, it was, you know, 11 o'clock, whatever the restaurant was going to open. And what's curious about this is that's the exact path they took that night when they died that night. And we watched them go right over the overpass where they crashed. We were behind them. In the and same if, car. In the same car. If Bobby's tire would have deflated then instead of later that night, we would have watched them crash. But it didn't deflate till later that evening. So to continue the story, we went to lunch. We had a fantastic lunch. And there's a little story in there that mentions about Wendy giving them money and stuff and you know, how much love we had and Bob laid down in her lap after dinner. And there's a couple of stories about how, you know, there's some cute stories in there about our afternoon. We had a wonderful time with the boys like we always did. Yes. Our time with our boys was heaven. It really was. It was heaven on earth. And it was recognizable to everyone. Everyone told us that. So we we uh, all went back home. But Wendy and I went shopping. She had some shopping to do. So the boys left 
And we went to the bank. Wendy went in the bank, gave Bobby $20. And I had a fun time with Bob in the car, hanging out with him and Andy and talking while Wendy went in the bank. And then Bobby drove away. And that was the last time we saw him a lot. And then um, Andy went home and he was waiting for me to come home to work on the car. But we ended up shopping in the mall. And I don't know what your experience is, but we can hardly go to the mall without getting so wiped out. We're just, when we get home, we can't even believe it. There's something about that environment that just takes your energy. That smells something. We don't know what it is. So we got it's home awesome. early afternoon and Andy was there, just woke up from a nap. And, and he said, you know, well, you know, you want to work on the car. And that's when I told him, I'm so exhausted from the mall, Andy. You know, we're not going to be able to finish tonight anyway. So why don't we just wait until the morning? I'll, you can take the T-Bird tonight, our car. And he said, fine. So then that was the last time I ever saw him. Wendy had a little more experience with him in the house. And he drove away to see his girlfriend, the T-Bird. And what happened ensued after that was they ended up together at a party at somebody's house in Fallbrook. Around 10 o'clock, they left for a party in Escondido. And Bobby drove his car because Andy's car was still torn apart. So Andy got in his car with two other friends and they drove that same exact path we drove earlier that day. The tire inflated, the car fell deflated, the car fell down from the overpass and they all died. So that's basically, and then the next is when the doorbell rings. That catches you up to that, that moment. Hmm. Can you talk us through the events that followed? Yeah, well, first, first thing we did was got the prayer book the, Tibetan book, the tibetan book of the dead that we had and we had never really researched it to read a dead person through the bardos but we were familiar with it and we loved it so uh that helped so we did that and then also the um mortician who had come to the house and given me the driver's license he had told us, you know, I wanted to know where the accident happened. And I, I wanted to know where the boys were because I wanted to take the book and because you're supposed to read in their ear. You're supposed to read to their body. And he told me, oh, absolutely not. You know, no way. Uh, they're so torn up and you can't get in the morgue and they're going to have autopsies in the morning. And I mean, he was so brutal. And so I'm like, the okay, fine. So we got the prayer book. We started researching in the prayer book. And then also we wanted to know where it happened. So we wanted to go down and actually resonate with the last place on earth that they were, because now they're not on earth anymore. So we found out where this place was. We had never heard of it. So we had to get a map. This was before cell phones. So we got a map. And we found this place and it was just this funny little ac um, access road to connect to um, other roads where they had crashed over. And so uh, then we started planning out our, our journey. And then we realized I should call my mother. I should call uh, a couple other people. And we, we were trying to, as devastated as we were, we were trying to still be responsible parents and still be the best parents we could be to them, no matter what state they're in, no matter where they are, we're going to do what we feel is in their best interest. And so that's, that's, that's what we did at that time. And so we familiarized ourselves with the, we made a couple of phone calls, really familiarized ourselves with the Tibetan Book of the Dead, 
and where how to how to start. And then uh, the next thing we knew, it was dawn, and we got dressed. Uh, we didn't sleep, and we went directly down to the site, which is where which was devastating. And we that's where we found the blood and their hair. And I still actually have their hair still with the mud attached to it uh, on the shrine behind me. That's why it's right behind me. And uh, that's where I dug their their hair out of the mud and uh, brought it home and anything else. We were searching for anything that could be theirs that we wanted. And um, we found a few things, keys. We did find quite yeah. a few things that were in the car that had been scattered. And I was very into first aid, so I made sure all the all their friends and them had first aid kits for their car. Uh, pretty good first aid kits. And it was weird that all the first aid supplies were like perfectly scattered uh, as if someone had placed every Band-Aid, every alcohol swab, every disinfectant, every... Uh, all the other things that were in there, the sunscreens, the, you know, so it was, uh, that was kind of weird. And then their cassette tapes were there. Uh, the one had unraveled and was just blowing in the wind. And those were Bob's. Here's and, the actual hair. Can yeah. you see it? Can you see the hair? The two things of hair. Oh, yeah. See, wow. and they, they were in the mud and the dirt. There's still their blood and everything on them. The dirt's still on We didn't put it in the book. You couldn't get a good picture of it, but just I thought it would show up here. But this was amazing. This was there because why was that there? These two clumps of hair. How did they hair. get there? You know, they looked like they were cut off. Well, their bodies had been laid yeah, their there. their bodies had been laid down. We knew that. And then there was this big circle of blood. And then we noticed the hair there. And I just immediately uh, dug it up. And I thought it was they left it there for Wendy to tell her they were okay. That was what I think of. Because hmm. it was odd. But anyway, that was a gift. Um, I felt from them that I still have our first gift, our first gift <laughs> of many that they left us and gave us. And you write about in your book, following the procedure laid out in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, to read instructions, bardo instructions to the deceased. And you write about that. Padmasambhava warns about reading to the deceased while crying or showing emotion. If you right. do, you can you can distract the spirit from focusing on what's important and possibly cause them to get upset and suffer. Right. Wendy and I understood we'd have to leave our attachment to Bobby and Andy behind and read the words from the Tibetan Book of the Dead without revealing the devastation that existed inside of us. And then you go on to describe the procedure that you uh, began on, on the first night and continued for 49 days. We started in Andy's room. I called out Andy three times in a firm voice, and his spirit entered the room. It was mystical, and I knew not to say or even think anything. Without hesitating, I read, keeping my mind focused on speaking each word carefully. Wendy, too, emptied herself of thoughts and concentrated on the words. We were deep into a wonderful experience with our beloved Andy. The Bardo prayers, instructions, informed Andy what was going on and how he should react. When I finished, we felt him leave. Then we quickly and quietly moved into Bobby's room. I'm wondering for those who may not be familiar with the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the procedure that you, you were following there, can you explain a little bit about 
that procedure and using that text in that way. And also your experience over those coming days as you repeated that process night after night. Yeah, I got chills when you read that. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> I didn't think I would. The, the Tibetan Book of the Dead is real exacting on what to do and what not to do. It really gives you the instructions. We simply followed the instructions through. But the, our part was to completely empty our minds so we didn't have any influence on the reading or our feelings or emotions towards the boys so they could hear what we were saying clearly and react to it. We could feel them there. They were definitely, we felt Andy come into the room. We knew he was there. His presence was so strong. And then when we were done with the prayers, we felt him leave knowing that we now need to go and read to Bob. And Andy and Bob were so connected. Uh, once Andy was born, all he wanted, he just wanted me to have that other baby, have that other baby. And when I was pregnant, he... He was so delighted, even though he was so tiny. You know, every time we'd go somewhere to see, see, uh, there was some sight, the sunset or the sunrise, and he would turn my stomach towards it, you know, show the baby, show the baby. And he knew the baby was coming. And as soon as Bob was born, his only goal in life was to hang out with Andy. So they were very, very connected from a previous life, I'm sure. And they had been separated for that time and really wanted to find each other. So we have this pretty heavy connection, uh, you know, them coming to us and then us finding them. And they had told us, I don't know if we mentioned this in the book, but they had both told us, hey, don't worry, you guys, we're, we're going to have you. We are never going to be separated from you again because we are going to get, you know, we're, we're going to have you and you're going to be our kids. So then when they died first, we thought, oh, gosh. But as it's turned out, them being reborn now and of our age, this is working out perfect that we will probably die when they're still of childbearing years so they can have us. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. How sensitive are the both of you or were the both of you to that sort of a dimension beforehand? Or was there something about the intensity of this situation that uh, increased your sensitivity? For instance, being able to feel, you speak very matter-of-factly about that, being able to feel Andy entering the room and leaving the room and so on. Did you have that sensitivity before, or is that something that awoke uh, at that time? I think we always had it with the boys. They were always, uh, we were so happy to have children. We wanted to have children together. And we were so happy to have them. And they were so delightful. They're beings in of, in of themselves were uh, exceptional beings. Andy wrote the poems and Andy never said a bad word about anybody ever. His whole life. His whole life. And he wouldn't tolerate any sort of negativity coming from a road rage or anything he would explain to his friends and which is funny because Andy went to Amitabha's Pure Land and Bobby went to Manjushri and Manjushri is quite different and it was funny because like if their friends would smoke cigarettes and they were so against that Andy would explain to him oh you know you're supporting an industry that's really bad and it's so bad for your temple you know you you, you know smoke 
uh, something else instead and uh, you don't need to smoke cigarettes and he would go through this whole thing where bob on the other hand if he his friends were smoking cigarettes he would just pull it out of his hand put it on the ground snuff it out and say that's it stop it so that was very Manjushri and very Amitabha paths that they took in life. And Bob was always like that. He was so intense about the way he thought and how things should be. And he never had, well, we gave them full reign to be who they were because they were so fantastic. We wanted them to, to really be able to blossom into who, who these beings that we knew we had known. And we knew they had come to us so they could be who, who they are, all of who they are. It was an unusual situation, not that other people, I met a lot of other people, close families, but it was very unusual, our, the relationship we had with Annie and Bobby. And it was obvious, we had people in restaurants would come up to us, we'd be eating and they'd say, we just wanted to stop and tell you what a wonderful family you guys have. And when me and Randy and Bob all had long hair, and I mean, you know, and this is even, even in Georgia, People would, you know, I'm just, so it was obvious there was something going on with us as the four of us, something special. Why do you think that was the case? Karma, our karma finally just ripened to be really in a, in nice and great, and we had this opportunity. It was short, you see that, you know, but a lot of times that's the way it is. The, the, the good die young, and all our prophets die by the time they're 30. I mean, you know, the really exceptional lives don't seem to last that long. And also, I think that we had we had been separated and had other lives and were always searching for each other. And so then when we all got back together in one house and related, I think it, somewhere in our minds, we all knew that that, wow, this is so special. We all found each other again and we're all here again. It's like, you know, you're in a desert and you find your group <laughs> again and you're so happy to reunite. I think that is uh, kind of how it was. Would you have articulated it in that way at the time or is that an understanding that you've come to articulate that way subsequently? Is that yeah. the time? We know it. We people know it. told us all the yeah. time. We'd be with people and they'd say, I just want to tell you. You yeah. know, you got really something special going with your kids. And People we, would do that a lot of times. And we knew it. We were always yeah, we so we were always so thankful. We were so thankful we found each other. And then when we found each other, kind of our goal was to bring in the rest of our tribe and get get everybody back together. And so that's like what we did purposely. They were our best friends too. They would rather go with us for the day. If they had a choice or go with their friends, they'd go with us. That would, there was not even a question. If we asked them to go to the beach, it didn't matter. They would go with us. They wanted to be with us, which is unusual for a 16 and a 19 year old. Yes, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Or even if we wanted to move to an island, we had talked about moving to an island and they were totally, yeah, let's do it. I'll be the nature guide and I'll be the plant guide and you know, they totally got into whatever it was uh, to be together. As long as we were all together, they were happy. Could you talk a little bit about that, those, those 49 days? Uh, I know even during that 49 days, you'd resolved to begin looking. In fact, you wrote here, we sat in silence and then Wendy said, we need to find them. They're not gone. They'll be born somewhere. That's when we promised each other not to quit until we found both of their reincarnations. Because we're so karmically connected, we should be able to find them. 
and then in Wendy's voice. The book is written uh, in both of your voices uh, back and forth. I truly believe it was comparable to having your children disappear while shopping. You don't just go home, you search until you find them, even if it took the rest of my life. Right. So why did you decide to go looking? We had to. Let me interject here. This was the next day. They died the one day early. We went there that night. The next morning we went there and when hour, that's when that happened. So it happened right away. We It wasn't take any time wait and it was like if you were at the mall and you lost your kids you're not going to wait a couple of days you're going to start searching immediately and i knew i knew they were somewhere but i knew also that they were in the bardos and that they needed to be guided through the bardos take their i was hoping i would get pregnant and when i didn't then we had to um search for their new mothers i mean if i would have got pregnant with twins that would have been we did think that there was well, there's a lot that's not in the book yeah. it really taken that path we even asked the llamas and they said yeah it's a possibility it's possible. but it didn't work out it ended up not working that way so first priority was that guiding them through the bardo and then after that uh right. yeah finding them yeah right. well, definitely we knew the bardo thing because they're in it they died where are right. they they're in the bardos but also during that time in the bardos we were uh their friends would come over and our doors were open. They could come in the middle of the night and spend the night in Andy's room or spend the night in Bob's room because they were grieving so massively. Oh. This was a huge, huge thing. And consequently, that's when we started, uh, I think we explained in the book, keeping the journal. But even, you know, right away, they, they would come to us and say, oh, my God, Andy and Bob were in my bedroom or I had this dream, you know. So right away we realized, oh, Okay, they're bringing it's might it could come from anywhere. So we uh, that's when I told the kids, hey, when you see them, don't be all awestruck. Look around, see what country they're in. Ask them their address. Ask them if they have a phone number. What's their name? What country are they in? You know, get do some uh, investigating here. That's your golden opportunity. They're coming to you, and you know they came to us also. But uh, when they would have these explicit dreams and stuff, we're like, well, what did it look like behind them? You know, were they, what's their mountains? Was there trees? <laughs> what country were they in? What language were they speaking? You know, because of uh, writing everything down like we did in the journal, you get a glimpse at the intensity of the pain and the grieving. And I think our searching for them was our answer to our grieving. That we were in such intense pain the only way out seemed to be to follow them and find them. And we knew they wanted us to find them. So they're, they're really, really never, we never once wavered from our goal. Anyone can tell you that. We, we had a few friends uh, shy away and then other friends were solid, you know, because they got sick of, you know, we could have the same story for the rest of our life and not find them. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, actually. You received a lot of support, particularly from various lamas, well-known lamas, and we'll come to some of those, I think. But I'm curious if you were criticized at all. You announced publicly to your circle that you're about your intention to find your son's reincarnations. And I'm curious how people reacted, given, yes, you had lots of support eventually from various lamas that you contacted. 
remarkable actually but were you ever criticized did people did anyone try to talk you out of it yeah we did have a few did you want to talk no no you can't we, we did have a few friends that um and and we realize now that a lot of this uh closure and things you know when you're grieving for someone and the loss you're going to miss them and i still miss them even though i get to talk to them i still miss my andy and bob uh so we did have friends and that only a couple only a couple there was only a couple of people that came forward and were like well hey you know it is what it is you have to accept the it for being perfect and they knew that that had been actually my my philosophy in life is you can never ever question it is all so perfect that you can't think. and i taught the boys that no matter how bad something is that happens to you it's a blessing because now that karma ripened you worked it out that's over move on don't get hung up on it so friends knowing that that was my philosophy would be like okay let's move on but uh that was really for them to not have to deal with us and those are the people i'm saying kind of faded um away and other people were so solid and supportive most, most people, people. Uh, yes. at the same time. but it's true right there's one more thing the state of mind we were in 20 years ago when this was happening is not the state of mind that you're talking you're addressing now we were in a, a magic space and that was how we were able to contact the boys and exist on the other side for periods of time and everyone that drawn into our circle experienced some of that magic you couldn't help it. So they were either very comfortable in that space or they were uncomfortable. And it was very few people that were uncomfortable and gave us that uh, kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, selfish advice to, um, you know, find closure and get on with our life, get on with it. You know, we had people say, well, wow, you don't have kids anymore. You can do anything you want. You can go get your PhD now and, you know, do do, you know, your goals in life. And that's like. Um, my goal in life is to find the boys. And then when I find them, I will, again, do whatever I can to help them wherever they are. What about those 49 days? You write in the book about some quite remarkable moments. What do you remember? Uh, what stands out about those those 49 days? Well, it was intense. It was like we entered in with the boys and we didn't leave that space until they did. Um, so all, all the things that happened and some really miraculous things did happen. Wasn't that weird about me sweating? You know, from day one, I went through two or three pairs of pajamas a night for that whole Sheets 47 and everything days. had to be changed every night. And then that uh, experience happened when we were out in the desert at that little resort where, like I said, I felt like my body had been restructured. And that morning when I woke up, I was dry. And it never happened again. So that's some phenomena that we'll we'll never know. I say in the book, I think it could have helped them through the Bardos. That could have been me doing something physically that was actually affecting the whole thing. For them like a, so like a we don't know. We just know that that happened. Yeah. And then all the stories with people coming and telling us about their dreams mm -hmm. and they or they saw, you know, they woke up and they saw Andy standing there. And, um, you know, I don't want to jump ahead of this 49 days because that's what we're, we're talking about right now. So let's just keep it to that. 
but the whole time was magic and we were just in a space where we were every day was another day and um, like you said a lot of things happened in that 49 days well the only the thing that differentiated one day from the other is that that is the next day of prayers we would say it was actually one huge giant experience that we were like on an experience for 49 days that never let up at all so that it was we, really we, intense you know meditated every night and every morning yeah and a lot of times we would feel the voice come you could feel their energy yeah. you know their presence and they know? would sit there and enjoy practicing with us and it was really nice but there is that awareness where everything's one right there. And if you can tap into that and they're there at the same time, well, then you're in the same space, even though there was a direct communication. And that's another thing that kept us going is we realized that they were right there. You know, it wasn't like they died and then, oh, hey, let's go find them. We're, that body's going to show up a later time. There was a whole bunch in there with their, um, with their existence, their soul, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, we were having experiences with that part of their awareness, that part of their consciousness. They gave us constant signs to comfort us and to guide us as they were also guiding us to guide them so that we would all work together to reunite. And it worked. And when that 49 days was over, we actually, we realized that now we're in the next step. You, you know what I mean? We became aware, okay, now this is what's next. Now they're going to take a mother and we'll still pray for, totally for a more, uh, a, a good rebirth, a human rebirth, easier, to, I mean, not easier to find. Animals are actually easier to find, but yeah, that's, we prayed for that, for the more favorable rebirth for them. So when those 49 days were up, you began your search. Can you talk about some of your initial ideas? Uh, where did you think initially, uh, where would you begin your search, the sorts of people you were beginning to contact in those initial stages? Well, we were looking for anyone that could help us in any way. We really didn't know where information would come from as to where they were. So we told all our friends and relatives, everybody, then everyone knew our path. Anyone that knew us personally knew exactly what we were doing. And that was it. It was just, that's the way it was. But um, we had asked people, so we had contacted some psychics and some seers and- And, and the, not to interrupt you for one minute, but because of our history, our good old friends, and I was a yoga instructor, and a holistic health practitioner, which brought me into a huge realm of really cool people. And I was also into herbs and uh, um, essential oils and things like that. So I had a, a huge uh, amount of people that were uh, around me in those kinds of realms. So you can imagine they all knew somebody. So we were contacting the Pharons, the calling Russia, calling Europe, calling Germany, you know, talking to these people through interpreters, getting readings. We didn't care. And that's that's what we were going for for anything. And then we kept track of that. How many of those readings did those people say Andy was going to be born in Asia? And I was kind of like, oh, could you be a little more specific? Yeah, it's funny, all these all these different people we contacted. And 
I mean, some of them we even were going to say, you know, they're, they're, I call them fluffy. Uh, I, they're not real serious about delving into consciousness. But how many of them came up with that? Annie would be born in Asia and Bob would be born a girl. It, you know, when it was all said and done, it was surprising when we look back on it. I thought, well, these people were tuned into something. Yeah. You know, even though it didn't seem to go very far. And, uh, you know, we moved on right away. And we did run into a couple of people that were completely. Uh, yeah, that we walked out and, you know, I had to tell them you might want to look into a different occupation. <laughs> Because they definitely weren't bad weren't karma real. Weren't <laughs> to, to try to pull this off and it's not working so yeah we we ran into a few um people that were working it and we knew and you know and we would always take bob and andy's ashes with us to any reading that we did in in person or if we were on the phone that well we keep them with us all the time anyway and we took them everywhere on the airplane in the car on the train wherever we went uh, we had papers to be able to travel with them with ashes and that's something we just came up with yeah we just we, did there's nothing that caused that to happen no anything we read or it was just what we felt i slept we with their like ashes was, we felt that have that need to have them near us their ashes what was left you write about one of those uh i suppose ne'er-do-wells in or less fortunate encounters in the book you write here, upon hearing there was a Tibetan Lama doing Mo divination in San Diego, Ronnie made a phone call to a Wisdom Traditions bookstore that resulted in an appointment. Mo's can tell you about your life or answer specific questions. When we arrived, we met Ken, the owner, and he introduced us to the interpreter who brought the Lama to San Diego. The interpreter reeked of alcohol as we followed him to a sizable room in the back of the building. Inside the room was the psychic Lama, his overweight monk helper, and his 20-year-old daughter. Ronnie handed the interpreter our donation envelope. We sat down, each of us holding one of the boy's ashes. Do you want to recount the rest of that story? Well, yeah, you want to tell it? That's a really bad That's one. a bad story. <laughs> and that was one experience we had that shocked us because it was a llama. And this was the first time we had seen a Tibetan llama. Yeah, so this was one of there our... Really, there weren't any llamas or hardly any Tibetans when so the we boys were, died. Yeah. Now, 20 years later, there's several monasteries and there's 40 right. Tibetans that we know. I mean, but things... And right at that point, they changed. Our Lama Samtan, that you'll get into later, moved to Escondido at the same exact time the boys died. But it took them a while to get the monastery set up, so we didn't have access to him yeah. at that time. Well, that, that guy... The, the, yeah, the yeah, Mo, the Mo guy. The Mo guy uh, was, um, well, it was kind of interesting because I viewed it as an illusion shattering experience. And we have shown what happened. He wants to know the story. When yeah. The money open. Yeah. So the, the interpreter who was very intoxicated actually showed the, I'm just going to call him the Mo guy, our, <laughs> Our donation, which was the suggested donation, but apparently it wasn't enough. And that and we thought, why is he showing them the money? And, that, and we thought, OK, well, that's how much divination we're going to get, whatever. That's all we can afford. So uh, and we had Andy and Bob there and he proceeded to tell us that the boys were suffering and they were stuck and that we needed to give more money. 
in order for them to do these more practices and to have something go on at Bodhna Stupa and, and free up their suffering. And free up their suffering. And we we needed to do this. And it just reminded me so much of uh, I don't know, priests trying to get people through uh, uh, purgatory, you know, the, the whole made up thing. And uh, I was like, oh my God. And it was like one illusion being shared. And I kept like hiding the boys. I didn't want to expose them to this. And then his daughter came over and got right in my face, which I thought was, I mean, get out of here. And she was like, don't you care? Your boys are suffering. And she was so intense about it. You know, you have to give this more money so we can help you. And at that point, I grabbed the boys and ran out of the room and ran out to the car hooked them up in their little seatbelts in the back seat. Ron got in the car and we couldn't even drive. We, we just, just sat there. We just sat stunned. there, we stunned. 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 And, and I, I get, like you get an illusion shattered. You're thankful to get an illusion shattered. But that was like huge. And in our state of mind, it was, uh, this isn't a proper word, but huger <laughs> than, than uh, you know, shocking. And that, But that put in perspective, okay, stay clear stay open-minded you are not gonna not honor divinators or tibetans even or, or tibetans or lamas this is not going to nothing could shake us off our path there yeah. wasn't anything that would veer us off of it or shoot us off of it even that all that did was make us even more aware because we had already had that other fluffy candle angel guy where i told him you know maybe he should look into another occupation uh it, so we had already had, <laughs> we had already had these things happen and, but it was shocking to have it happen with a tibetan but then we thought okay and it was funny just to fast forward a little when we went to india and met our our monk that we had been sponsoring and he traveled with us and was so such a wonderful person we were so so blessed to have connected with him. But one of the first things he told us was that, mm. let me just tell you, don't be led astray by all monks. Do not join the monastery to achieve enlightenment. There's, you know, he had been sent there because his father died and his mother couldn't afford to keep him. And a lot of monks are sent there for their education and they will work it. So just beware. And we kind of already were because of that experience. So that experience did open our eyes. It didn't make us like shy away. We no, were, after that, actually, Tibetans started filtering through the San Diego area and we started attending a lot of teachings. Yeah. There's a lot of cases we attended that we didn't write in there. That one big lama would come in from one of the lineages and we'd go take the teaching. Or we beautiful. took everything. It was wonderful. So after that time, they started filtering in, but he was the first actual Tibetan we were in contact, but it didn't sour us to the Tibetans. We realized right away he was a charlatan. People are people. And karma is karma. Yeah. We just were happy to get the boys away. And we really, I, I smudged all around their, their ashes and everything and burned bay leaves and smudge sticks and, you know, incense and stuff just to make sure they weren't affected by that. Because that was like the worst thing we had ever done uh, with them. Mm. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that the first Lama then after this that you met that really um, intrigued you or really... Uh, turned you on, I guess, to Tibetan Buddhism and that side of things was Lama Kamtrul, who you yes. met in September. 
1997. Talk about night and day. They are so awesome. Oh, what You know, he gave that three-day teaching. I still have it. I took all the notes. It's the most comprehensive, complete teaching about Tibetan Buddhism from the ground up. It's unbelievable. And he taught without any notes. It was three days of no notes. And he was wonderful when we got with him. He told us not to cry. He said, it's not going to help. He said, just do your prayers when you feel sad. You know, the boys are fine, you know, and you probably more than likely they're going to be born to your relatives. That's what he told us. And at that point, we had hope. He gave us a lot of hope and he was so wonderful. Such a great teacher that maybe was the most comprehensive teaching we've ever had. Yeah. Because it was on Buddhism. We went to Dalai Lama five times, but it's always one aspect of Buddhism. It's never the complete teaching. It and was it's A amazing. to Z. It's and just it amazing. Slowed for the whole three days. You really felt like it was one big teaching, which it was, where he just so uh, the continuity was just never broken. And and you could also it was given in a way that you could comprehend it easily. It was very friendly. You could uh, comprehend it and assimilate it and really uh, retain it because of his presentation and because of the way he was just so really almost an unreal person. I'd like to say right now, though, for one of the magic things that happened with this that was so strange, um, after the boys died, we didn't work for like six months. We got some money. We were able, we were just, well, I also worked construction. Andy and Bobby were my crew. Well, that ended that overnight. But I still could go on building, which I did end up picking up. But about six months. So we were, our money was getting pretty shy. And, um, um, well, where was I going with this? Start? No. Oh, I'm a control. So we were there and we had started, had joined the Rigpa and we were getting into the Buddhism. You know, we were attracted to it, heavily attracted to it. We loved it. And we were sitting at home one day and we were looking at Snow Lion magazine. And we said, you know what? Let's order a book. Let's order a book on Tibetan Buddhism. We already had the Sogo Rebbeche's, the Tibetan Book of the Living Dying, which is pretty complete about anything you're looking for. But we thought, let's buy another book. So we found a book by um, um, Lama. Uh, yeah. Oh, shoot. A British teacher. Keller Rinpoche. Oh, Keller And we had a friend that went to, it's a whole different story, but he lived under Keller Rinpoche's house for 15 years in Sonata. Keller took him in. So we felt a connection. So we bought a book on Keller Rinpoche and we bought a video. And the book was $15. The video was $15. We thought we can afford that. We put it on a credit card and we ordered the video. Um, I'm going to have to talk now about our, with the Mustangs. Mustangs, I had a 64 and a half Mustang the very first year one ever to come out. Both Andy and Bob drove Mustangs. So Mustangs was like our thing. And the title of the movie was Mustang. And it's about this town or whatever you want to call it in Bhutan. And so we thought, well, that's perfect. Well, we get the movie and watch it. And the movie is the Dalai Lama. The story is the Dalai Lama sending one of his highest uh, lamas to walk into Mustang takes seven days to walk into it. They're going to bring back two children to Dharamsala. They're going to educate them to go back as teachers because they didn't have any teachers in Mustang. They weren't learning the language and they wanted to, you know, to upgrade. So this old llama with his wife and they get on these donkeys and it shows their whole seven days. It's a wonderful movie. And then they and have to get off the donkeys back. and walk. And uh, yeah. And so 
when we after we saw Lana Control, we went back home and we looked at our movie and we hadn't realized it. he's the star of the movie. Lama Control is the one that Dalai Lama sent to Mustang to bring back the boys. And these but are, we hadn't remembered it. We hadn't right. put that together, you know, for some reason. And they're just little things, but when you're in that kind of expanded state of consciousness, everything is like, wow. So when it starts all hooking up to each other, then, yeah. you know, you see, well, there's something manifesting here. So that was just a little add to the Lama Control that was wonderful. But if you ever get a chance, watch that movie. It's pretty fun. So everything along our journey to keep us focused, things were happening constantly to reassure us that we were on the correct path. We were on the right path, that whatever we were doing was going to come to fruition at some point. So that's- And doubt did come up occasionally where we had to deal with it and you know reassure ourselves that everything was right and to keep moving forward. Even though the more we went into it, if you would take something like that Lama Control movie thing, and add them all up. There were so many coincidences going on that you had to see there was something yeah. more here than just chance. Yeah. But you, from the inside, it's hard to see that. You can't have a hundred million coincidences and not think something's happening. That it's more than coincidence. Did you meet Lama Samton or Lama Dawa first? Lama Samton. But there's way more. There's more before that, though. Okay, let's do it. Let's do the before okay. that. So. After we read the Tibetan Book of the Living and Dying, Soga Rinpoche's book, which I recommend to everyone to read that book. It's so wonderful. It really, there's, everything's in it, you know, and I, I'm not saying instead of reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead under, you know, someone dying or something, but nonetheless, there's so much information in there, and it sure helped us point in the way, just telling us that people existed, like a Daylock, for instance, which is a Tibetan that actually is a seer, and they can cross over, and they actually can bring back messages from the other side, which we never did find a daylock, but we learned about him. And all that gave us more hope that we would be able to find the boys. But we joined, after we read the book, which took us about three months, we, as soon as we got the book, we read everything that was important, what to do with the dying, what about grieving? We read those things that we picked out. First. Then we started, Wendy and I started reading at night to each other when we went to bed. We'd go and meditate, we'd go in our room, and then we'd start reading. We just found different books. Buddhism. And that one of the uh, we had with um, with Kala Rinpoche, and you know we had came upon other books along the way. So it ended up taking us about three months to finish that book, and then we realized that in the back of the book there was lists of groups of Rigpa in America, and there was one in San Diego. So we called and we went and took a you know a little introduction and we loved it. We were really drawn to it. So we joined the group and then we started learning Tibetan Buddhism. And at the time, the Rikpa gave the teachings. They were they were a series of teachings, but they were all written by Soga Rinpoche and his cronies. He you know he had a couple of guys with him that were brilliant, brilliant, and they would send a video also. So, so the, you, the teachings weren't from given from a white person's perspective. They were, you would watch an actual teaching from Sogyo. What you would have on a paper form would be a translation of, uh, or a transcription of the video. And that's what you would study. And then they would have a little question and answer, you know. So it was like a, you know, a real class. And you would answer these questions. And it wasn't like you got graded. But if you couldn't answer one of the questions, you would go back into the teaching and find that answer so that you had 
uh, absorbed everything you needed to move on to the next. And the other really nice thing about this is we had become friends right away with a, a few of the people there. And uh, they had, uh, there was stream courses, stream one, stream two, stream three. We ended up taking all three streams, but they let us take stream one and stream two, which was completely unheard of. And they made a huge exception at the same time. One was on Saturday, one was on Sunday. And as it turned out, stream two was really a re extension. an extension of stream one. So it was really great. And actually we thought that was a really good way to, to do it. And then we took the stream three, but, uh, that really helped us learn everything we needed to know. Everything that happened, it really was like we weren't doing anything. We were completely had given ourselves over to the flow. And we were like a, a, a leaf or whatever floating downstream, you know, crashing into a rock every now and then and making its way around, going through some rapids and getting back in the nice Part, hanging out in the still part for a while. And that's what it was really like. We we were the leaf and we had no real control except that we were open and willing to do whatever it took and to stay focused on this path and, uh, and, and for our final goal, which was to find them. So whatever we needed to know to find them is what we were dry sponges ready to absorb. The rig was great, but for your viewers, they don't offer those stream courses anymore. anymore. They have a different program, and I don't know exactly what happened with that. That's that's too bad because it was wonderful. But so what happened with we started going to the the rig petition, then we started going to Wednesday night meditations at one of the rig person's house. And one night they had a flyer there about this uh, Dr. Dickey who was a Tibetan doctor from Lhasa. Lhasa, and she was given a talk on Tibetan medicine. Well, Wendy, with her holistic, I mean, it was just perfect for her. And so she said, well, I'm, I want to know what's up with these guys. So I took her and dropped her off, and she just fell in love with the, with the Dr. Dickey and the talk and how they incorporated their Tibetan Buddhism into the American uh, medicine. How, you know, she explained everything, which they do have a great meshing. They don't just discard American medicine. They realize that they have to merge it. And they do a real good job of that. But consequently, Wendy had a problem. And so she wanted to see Dr. Dickey. We actually, at that point, became her patients. And she was in San Francisco, but she'd come down to San Diego. She had an office here. And once or twice a month, she would be there. So we made appointments with her and we started going and seeing her. And I took her medicine classes. I love anything, uh, how all the countries around the world do their medicine and how all the countries around the world take the same food and cook it way different and delicious and how some's medicine and you know how, how they do it. So I'm fascinated with it, with medicine and food. And I think food is medicine. I cook food is medicine. So. So we hooked up with Dr. Dickey and we, and now I'm going to jump a year now. Okay. But in the meantime, we took a lot of Tibetan teachings. Anytime we heard of any Lama, we were drawn to it. We loved it. We were soaking it up as much as we can. I think in the meantime, Wendy had gotten into wearing her chubas. Um, there was a big deal with her and her Tibetan girlfriends. I mean, we had been connecting with a lot of Tibetans. And um, a year later, actually, it was a whole year, she, 
told us that she wanted to help us find the, the voice. And she had a llama, and that was Tokosanga. And she she said, well, he'll help you, you know. So we were, she said, you got to hook up to him. One thing led to another. We never really talked to him until uh, Halloween night. She called. She was at a party with him in San Francisco. And she interpreted. And we were able to tell him about the boys and that we were searching for him. And so he was able to do a, a mo. Um, yeah, the day they were born, the, the day they died, where they and were born. He, he said, they're fine. He said, they're fine. But you guys can do, there's practices you guys can do to help them. And that was to do the Amitabha for Andy and the Manjushri prayer for Bobby. So, and then they said, well, you should have a statue or a Tonka. Well, we didn't have statues or Tonkas. We knew about Tonkas because Wendy and I both traveled to India in the 60s. So we knew about Buddhist Tonkas and things. And also in the 60s, we've studied Buddhism and everything. We read books, soaked them up like crazy, you know. The, uh, so we were already exposed to Eastern religions, you know, pretty heavily. So, but we told the Lama, or we told Dr. Dickey, we said, we we don't know where to buy a statue. There's no where we or can buy Tonka, anything. You know, where do we get these? So things? at that point, he told us that he would have them made for us in Nepal. So we said, okay. So that story turned into another story that it was a year later till we did get them, till they finally came to America. And it was real auspicious. It was our first Dalai Lama teaching and the, he had sent him to San Francisco. The lady drove down there. We received him at the Dalai Lama's teaching. It was really cool. So we thought everything was really quite auspicious. So, so actually he was the one that was helping us there and he gave us the chance to do to make Bob and Andy have a better life. So we did have that. And um, so then we went from there, more Buddhist teachings, and we hadn't gone to see Lama Sompton. We knew he was there. We had heard about it. But his interpreter was named, I want to tell you the name. Right. And, and, but it was the same name as this drunk interpreter that we had seen with the bad Lama that gave us that bad reading wanted money. So we avoided it for months. Yeah, we, we thought we there. can't go there. If that guy's involved, we don't want to have anything to do with it. So we finally hear about a teaching. We go to Lama Sompton's and he comes right over to us after the teaching, which was unusual because a lot of these lamas, the people keep them shielded. You, you got to go through somebody. Make before an appointment, you get to the lama. make your donation. Yeah, whatever. So he came right over, started talking to us. It was wonderful. I thought, wow, We're this like, is cool. You know? <laughs> and um, so we started to attend the teachings that he was given, which were once a month or something like that. And one time we went to a pretty big teaching. People came from, he had had former students, he had groups in San Francisco and uh, Seattle, and they were they all came to this big three-day teaching. So we attended it, and while we were there, we had already gone through Ritpa. We hadn't seen these people in six months. We'd already passed through all the teachings, and we weren't going anymore. So they were, some of them were at the teaching, at this Lama Sopta's teaching. So during the break, we were standing there and they said, well, how's your search going for the boys? So we told them, you know, everything kind of what we told to you so far. And a guy was sitting on the couch in front of us and he turned around and he said, what are you guys talking about? And so we said, okay, so we excuse ourselves from the Rikpa guys. So we walked around and we told them, well, we're looking for our children that died. And he said, oh, Lama Dawa can find them. Just like that. This is Lama Dawa. Can you see him? Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, we thought, well, that's matter of factly. And so I said, well, who's this Lama Dawa and where can we find him? 
And he said, oh, he said he, he, he lived in Nepal, but he comes to America once a year giving teachings. Next time he's here, I'll call him and let you guys know. And it wasn't 10 days later, he called, he said, you got to go see him. He's down in San Diego. Yeah. So he gave us that phone number. It was the same place we saw that other right. llama. And we called real quick. And I already knew the guy because of the previous meeting, which was over a year ago by now. And he said, oh, come down right now. He said, it's Friday. He said, he's leaving tomorrow. He said, but if you come right now, you can catch him. And so we drove straight there. Jumped in the car. And that's when we met him. And that was the start of Lama Dao, who was the, the really the Lama that took us to the door. We did have to find the both of them on our own. We were, it was us that unveiled them, but they, he was able to get us to the door where all the other help we had gotten was strictly that they're fine. And he's born, you know, in the Asia, Bobby's born a girl there. Everything's good. You know, blah, blah, blah. Well, we couldn't really find well, Lama, where their yeah, bodies Lama were. Lama Dawa took Asia down to India, down to the Tibetan settlement of beer. And so that was like, what? Yeah, so the information he gave us that first time was that Bobby was born our girl to our friends or relatives, just like Lama Control had told us. And that Andy was a boy in Asia, but he said he's in a Tibetan settlement in Beer, and he gave us his father's name, Namgal. So that's pretty good information. Yeah. So we got our passports and our tickets. <laughs> and we made, got home. We made a list of all the girls born to our friends and relatives. And there was only three. We had boys, too. There was like 20-something boys, but only three girls. Two born to the same family. But well, we discounted the one, and then we thought, okay, it's one of these two girls to a, some friends of ours in Florida that we had met when they were in high school, actually. Yeah. And uh, we were there with Andy and Bobby. They knew Andy and Bobby well. And actually, we used to have skateboard contests. The, the one guy, the father, used to be the security at our contest. He was my mother's yard boy when he was 14 years old, and he drove a little scooter pulling his lawnmower behind him with his weed whip in between his legs and went up to my mom and said, you know, can I be your yard guy? And she she was like, oh, my God, of course, you poor, <laughs> you darling child. And uh, so we met him then, then. And that's weird that he ended up being... Bobby's. So we had lived Kelsey's in Florida for father. I think three or four years when they were young, and now they were older and they were having kids, and uh, right. it didn't take us long to realize that the one girl was Bobby. Yeah. Was, and we knew the mother also. Bobby's. We knew the mother because she was he was a football player, she was a cheerleader. They got married. <laughs> yeah. American story. And that little girl was Kelsey. Yes, yeah, that little girl was Kelsey. That little girl was Kelsey. Big girl now. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that first meeting? Okay, well, it was right away she took to us. Now, we had seen her since she was a little baby. We talked about that, and there was some kind of communication. Every time we put her down, she'd cry, and we'd pick her back up, and the parents were saying she doesn't act like that all the time. But we still didn't. We hadn't gathered anything until Lama Dawa told us. And at that point, then we realized, okay, let's go for it. Well, she had grown somewhat in that time, and she was not quite two. So she still wasn't even talking right. But man, when we showed up, was she nuts for us? She went crazy. crazy. She loved us so much. She wanted to be around us constantly. She hated it when we left. And, don't uh, go, don't go. She'd cry. And uh, we bought our little little soccer ball that we have that picture in the book where we were rolling it back and forth. And every time we'd come into the house, she'd scream. And I'm talking about shrill your ears. She was and, very animated. And run and get the soccer ball. We'd have to sit down and start playing with her immediately. 
But we had been there a whole week almost. We had driven there and we'd been there almost a week and we'd taken two of Bobby's things with it to see if she identified him. One was something he had when he was a child. Another one was this Ninja Turtle Halloween outfit that basically was a Ninja Turtle shell that you could wear. It was a pillow. And Bobby had worn that, had worn it when he was seven or seven years old. When he outgrew it, he hated it, but he had kept it on his bed the whole time. It was he on his wore bed. He until died. he was like a sausage stuffed in it. And then he was really bummed when he couldn't wear it anymore. And then he used it as a pillow for the whole, for right, the, so the day so he died. died. It was on his bed. Yeah. And he loved his, his turdy, we called it. So we really understood that we couldn't just well, go in and say, hey, Kelsey, do you recognize this? Or, you know, that we had to get her in a real empty state of well, mind. They had five other children. So it was very chaotic. Well, there was only, oh, yeah, there was only four at that time. At time. But, but it was anyway. still very chaotic. And uh, you, you had to be careful. Busy. Our thing with them, and we totally understood, was we couldn't give everything to Kelsey and nothing to the other girls. So if I would buy her a T-shirt, I'd have to buy the other girls T-shirts. We bought shoes. We'd have to buy shoes. Uh, well, we did. We would want to. We didn't want them, anybody to feel that. Yeah. So what happened was we were ready to leave the next day. And the we opportunity had to drive back home. Not we had not had any kind of opportunity to have her by herself. But we knew she had to be totally quiet to be able to reach into her back life Center. and come up with some kind of memory. It couldn't just be, hey, you're watching TV, you recognize this. Well, that opportunity came that day before we left. Everyone left the room and they went outside to the patio. And I was there with Kelsey. And I said, hey, you know, let's go out to the van. We had to have a van there and then Bob's toys were in the van. So I took her around to the back of the van and... Um, I got that first little thing he had when he was a baby and pulled it out and she wasn't interested in it. She gave it right back to me. She wasn't concerned, but she had some uncanny knowledge that that turtle thing was in the back of the van because she was so insistent on getting up on that van. She was, she was less than two years old in diapers and she was trying to climb up on the bumper. And well, get I, in the van. I grabbed her, pulled her up so she could see in the van. Well, she was too short even to see in the window from the from that because she was so little so i opened the van i got her bag down i opened the van door and that dirty was sitting right there she immediately screamed mine as soon as she saw it and i got it out i just grabbed it and handed it to her and as soon as she got it she gave it right back what she wanted was me to open it so she could get in it she it knew. was real obvious she that she knew it. to get in it. So and it I tied just, on the shoulders. So what it was, it was like a turtle shell, but it had the back that pulled away from it that you could step into and then you could tie it. So I immediately opened it and she stepped right in. I mean, like right now, she knew how to put that on. And I tied the back of it and then she and ran the in the shoulders. house. So then after she, that. Yeah, he was still coming behind her because she's really quick. And she ran in the house and she just came running up to me I mean, she was like grease lightning. She just ran so fast. And I'm sitting there and I look at her and I see she's got turdy on. And so I'm really excited too. And she's she her face was so over excited. And she came up and she's like, Winnie, Winnie, look, it fits me again. It fits me again. And she twirled around in circles and she was just like loving it. And so it was like, wow, okay, we found Bob. <laughs> So she played for a while. Of course, we were observing everything like we always had, but it was a constant observing them, trying to see, you know, are they going to say something or connect to something or whatever. And um, she played for a while, 15 minutes or so, and then she took it off. 
and it was bulky on her because she was only two and it was pretty big. You saw that picture though. You could see that she's got it on. So she took it off and set it down and we're thinking, hmm, you know, okay. was it a novelty? You know, you know how you're questioning everything. And one of her sisters tried to come and pick it up and oh my God, she ran over and grabbed that and took it to her room and put it on her bed and it's still on her bed. To this day. To this day. So that's basically, it was easy. She was easy. Not like Tim. What did Kelsey's parents think of that? It's quite a remarkable thing for a couple from Florida. They are a, a remarkable, they were remarkable people in themselves. And uh, they had told us when Bob and Andy died because they were such good friends with Bob and Andy and they knew our whole family that they were devastated when that when they died they couldn't even believe it and they said look we're going to have a bunch of kids we'll try to have them so they even though that's not really their belief system they, they were on board they were on board and jumped right in and they had twins girls first and then they had Kelsey and, uh, and when she was pregnant with Kelsey they had they knew that we were looking and they even called one time the dad called and he said do you think one of your boys could be our new baby but sure. we it it didn't mesh we just let it go we never even thought anymore about it we, for some reason it was one of those things or we just let it go but anyway the reason i'm telling you this is to show you that they were on board from day one yeah even though like you said a, a couple from florida um Maybe the intensity of Wendy and I, you know, was convincing. Uh, who even knows? Yeah. You know? Well, they were... they were good from day one. She actually called up after the boys died and said, you know, Bob said something's wrong. This isn't right. This doesn't happen to people like this. Like us. So they were they were awesome from the very beginning. And uh, they're they're pretty far out people as far as. Uh, open minded. They're, they're really open-minded. And she would call us and tell us other things, you know, sitting at the bus stop and Kelsey sees a red Mustang go by and just about jumps out of the car telling her mom, hey, that's my car, that's my car. And her mom calls us up, oh my God, you know, and just- She was crying, calling quite often telling us things that she was experiencing with Kelsey once they knew. And uh, she also knew too, when we called, when the llama told us it was the girls born to our friend, it was Bobby's a girl born to our friend. We called them and told them, and we had the two daughters. They had Tiffany and Kelsey, and we told them we think one of your daughters is is Bobby. And she said, "Oh, it has to be Kelsey." She said, "Didn't Bobby always wear red?" And we tell, "Yeah, but actually, when he was a baby, he'd only wear red clothes." And she said, "Kelsey won't wear anything but red. If that's not red, she'll take it off." So we already had had some kind of starting connection at that point but it was pretty easy um you know with Lamadala, it wasn't that hard you know even though um, um i don't know what to say that, that we weren't aware enough even to know even though we had had hints that she was bob from the parents and from other things it just had never really entered our mind that's why I, we had to do the hundred thousand uh hundred syllable mantras about yourself to, to uh, get rid of our own obscurations and our own our own uh yearnings or whatever was in the way you know we had our own things uh dirtying up the mirror and 
we needed to we we knew we needed to work on those things to clear away so we had clear vision to find them and all this time we were getting more immersed in tibetan buddhism more teachings more involved um, you know longer practice um, meeting more lamas you know whatever we could do we uh we did take quite a few teachings we didn't talk about all of them just the major ones but we were interested in any of the teachings and then we became interested in the culture we had a heavy attraction to the tibetans the way they dressed the way they acted the way you know just as tibetan cultural people and i would say that now that we really are cultural tibetans we've kind of come to grips with that we have a lot of tibetan friends i actually well i don't want to get ahead so kelsey was easy okay so we get back home we found Bob. okay well now how about tempo well he's in india you know and um okay so how, we got to go to india we got to go to this little tibetan refugee settlement beer and go find this nam gal that tempest dad and we have to get passports so there's a whole lot of deal visas. with the, the passports and the visas and uh wendy at that time she started wearing chubas and, and then she wore chubas to any tibetan thing we went to and then when we went to india she only wore chubas we were I there the whole six chubas. weeks and that was all she wore and it was really nice to be somewhere where i could actually yeah she can't wear her apron here you know the wife has to wear the apron with the chuba the pongan she can't wear it in america it's too much she can wear a tube and it looks like a real nice dress. People but think in it's India, weird. she could be free and she, you know, so she had quite a little array. She bought some more tubas and it was real nice. And I already had learned how to cook the Tibetan food and make the cheese. And, you know, so I was pretty integrated and we had learned some language. So we were doing, we were doing pretty good. That was around the year 2000, in the year 2000. And also at that time, uh, Lama Santen, who you developed quite a relationship with, uh, such that you actually refer to him as your Lama. He became your sort of Tawai Lama. Or your... yeah. Definitely. He was very uh, enthusiastic and supportive of your search and backed it. And in fact, began his own lookouts for hints and signs and so on, and had several powerful dreams and did many practices to assist your search. Uh, what was that like, That having that support or uh, I suppose, you know, that backing and that relationship. Wonderful. Oh, yeah, it was wonderful. It's just uh, wonderful. You know, he's an amazing person. Yes. He really is. He's really special. And uh, I spent a lot of time with him. I left out later on that I ended up, we built a big monastery near Escondido, and I lived on and off with him for two years building that monastery. It's just beautiful. And uh, most of that time was just he and I were there. I lived in the monastery, and we had a nun, but she worked full-time in san diego so a lot of that time was when we just became wonderful friends over the period of two years so it was more than that besides him being our lama he's our real good friend right right uh, and i was in florida at the time i had gone back to florida to take care uh, care caretake my mother uh who who was old and had fallen ill and uh, that's when i got to be the nanny for kelsey and her sisters so I, I got to be with Kelsey every day for, for seven years. And that was just fantastic. And, and her sisters. So we all, we were the gang and they were fine with my mom, even though she was handicapped and she had Alzheimer's. So, but they were, they were fine with it. They didn't care. They were in their own work, kid world. And we had a lot of fun and uh, learned a lot and crafts and store, you know, everything, sewing, everything, uh, cooking. So we had a, that that was where I was. And then and I was actually glad he I 
was sorry he missed being with Kelsey all the time, but because my mom was really quite challenging, I was fine with him leaving and going to uh, California and, and getting a little break uh, from that. So to year, year 2000, you, uh, you had these events with Kelsey. Also in year 2000, you went for the first time to India, but right before that, and this is maybe a little off topic, but you actually met uh, Drubang Rinpoche, who came from India and stayed for a while with Lama Samten, Drubang Rinpoche. What was that meeting like? He's, for the people who okay. know, quite a remarkable man. Well, now his feet are barely on the ground. Right. Because I was at the Lama, he was with Lama, he was staying there. So I was there with him. And I'll, I'll tell you what Lama told me about him. He said he was like a little kid. He'd go into the bedroom in the morning to wake him up. And he said he'd jump out of bed like a little kid. And we went out to dinner one time and he sat over by himself. He just was, he was in his own world. But he gave a teaching and he told us that right at that very moment, he was seeing nothing but clear light. He was happy. They made him cut all that hair, you know, because it got too heavy on his head. Well, he he, was so old. In, he yeah. couldn't get in the taxis. The car, the car thing was a real bummer because he'd have to sit like this. Now you want to know what his teaching was? Do I learn some Tibetan? Oh my, pay me hung. We chanted it for the whole day. Well, he he started giving the teachings in Tibetan. And then there was an interpreter and he was like, what are you doing? Why, you know, we, you're, it was interrupting his flow. And he said, and he said, if you want to know Buddhism, you bloody well should learn Tibetan. And he said, and so now we're just going to chant, oh, money, pay me. And we did for Africa. He, he gave a teaching on the six syllable mantra, uh, went into pretty good depth about it. And then uh, explained exactly how to do it a little bit with the mala, and then everybody just—that's what we did. And it was—it was remarkable, you know. There's something with the repetition, and uh, of course that chant and the visualization of you know the hung in your heart and everything. So uh, it was—it was very powerful. Uh, we really enjoyed it, and yeah. it, it was perfect for all the uh, the white people that were there. It was their level of whatever that they needed to learn. Oh, money, pay me home first. It was amazing having someone of that caliber. You know, caliber, if you want to say that, that free, that liberated that much into the oneness, you know, in your, where you can see him and hear him. Yeah, to actually see a, a physical uh, manifestation of that kind of energy. Energy, yeah. And, and uh, brilliance in his eyes. And, you know, so he's amazing. We were really blessed. And we felt really, but we were like, wow. It was like seeing, um, you know, something otherworldly, really. Hmm. So. Let's go to India then, shall we? In August 2nd, 2000, you landed in India in the first of what would be a few journeys, at least, in looking for Tenpa. Yes. Now, this is an interesting point also. Uh, previously, you'd sponsored a monk at that first Dalai Lama uh, teaching you attended. There was a table there. And you could sponsor a monk for 25 bucks a month. And you'd done that. And the, the monk you'd sponsored was a young man called Jangchup. Yeah. And then you landed to India. And that came back around because Jangchup uh, was there to accompany you. Right. He was marvelous. He's a marvelous person. Now, it's a funny story because we hadn't told him why we came to India. Now, he knew the boys died. He we were looking and he did know about Kelsey, right? He knew about Kelsey at that time. 
Maybe, maybe not. But he had, he thought we were, we were coming in there. We want you to travel with us, was what we wrote him. Yeah, he thought I was just And a, so he showed up. Um, you know, he's from Darjeeling, too, from Kalimpong. It's a little tiny town up there in Darjeeling, real close to the Tibetan border. He actually can walk to the border, to the Tibetan border from where he is. Anyway, it's a great little place. We wish we'd visit someday. I hear good things about it. But anyway, he met us at the airport in street clothes. And uh, we were, you know, we thought, okay, well, we didn't see anything, you know, but he took care of us, got the taxi. I mean, here we are in India. Now, we had been there, what, 40 years before or something. It wasn't the same. So he's there to meet us, and he picks us up. He gets a taxi. He has hotel rooms. We go to Majakantila, which is the Tibetan settlement in Delhi. And um, he just was invaluable for years. He speaks for fluent Tibetan, fluent English. Fluent Nepalese uh, and, Hindi, and fluent in Hindi, which was uh, had to to be. Which I don't know too. We might as well say here that you know the Dalai Lama set up schools, and every Tibetan child refugee has to go to school. And in school, they learn English and Tibetan, but on the streets, they have to speak Hindi. So those children grow up learning three languages. Just that's what they learn. You know, and and people think, oh, you know, they're, yeah, a lot from the TV. The Hindi, Hindi. Hindi TV. But um, it's just amazing that, you know, we're so one minded here that always oh, speak English that we don't realize that there's places where people grow up. They, oh, my God, they're speaking three languages. So we were quite amazed with him. And he was invaluable with the with the with the Hindu people getting taxis, arranging our rooms. Uh, he did everything for us for years, several years. He traveled every time we went there. And it was quite a few years before we finally went on our own. But he was invaluable. And he was so sensitive about everything. Um, you know, he was all concerned. And also, he's a super good monk. Not that they're not all, but it's just another story with him. He was in charge of the children. His job was taking care of kids at the monastery. And he he had that kind of heart about him. And it just showed he really is maybe the nicest person we've ever met in our life. Yeah. And he he would make the biggest tormas, the mother tormas for the monasteries. And he did everything. Yeah. He was just so well versed in everything about Tibetan Buddhism. Right. And he had gone and read uh one of his things when he was in the monastery was to go uh, read the Bardo prayers to the the dead people, or sit there while the Lama read them. But he was the attendant to to be there, so he had been through that forty nine day thing quite a few times. Right, that was their job. Yeah, you know that. So he was very well. familiar with uh, with all aspects of what we were going through. But he's a great guy, a fun guy, and uh, you know, I want to tell you though that he met a girl in Denmark, and he's now living in Denmark, and has a baby about one or two years old, and uh, he always wanted to leave India, and we were never able to do that for him, and but it was because of us, because we took him to beer, he met the girl there, and then so indirectly we were the reason that he was still able to get. So now he here. knows Danish. <laughs> Yeah, right. Now he's learning Danish. He has yeah. to. <laughs> he said it was real hard language to learn. Harder than oh, yeah. Danish is a tricky one. That's for sure. Yeah. Harder than the other ones, but he had to, to get a job and live there. So he took the classes and he learned it. On that first trip, you felt discretion was quite important. And that's we, something that Jiang Chuk was uh, uh, also very sensitive to. I'm curious why you felt discretion was important. And also, maybe you could talk then a little bit about how the search unfolds. It's almost like, uh, like an, I don't know, like a detective story. 
uh, at that point in the story the tone shifts a bit in the book yeah yeah it does shift and then also um, let me just back up you know that you get a glimpse of our sadness all the way until we find kelsey and then it changes from that point on we're only talking about our happiness um John Chip was good with it because our reason for that was that we have no way of proving who these children are. And all you get asked constantly is, can you sponsor me? You know, all the Tibetans and all the monks and all the village people, they want sponsors. And we thought if we let people know that we're looking for a boy, we're going to start, people are going to start lining up at our door. And how are we going to know it's if this person so really has a father named Namgal, if it's really the kid? So we thought it was better. And uh, Lama Somtant had warned us, too. He had told us it was better to go there and just be quiet and yeah, try no, to find no, no, him no. ourselves. So that's what we did. And John Chip went along with that. He thought that that was a good idea. And he wore his lay clothes. That may have hindered us in the long run. But to be truthful, as when he keeps uncovering in the book, it was our obscurations that were keeping us from finding them. It was something inside the karma of me and Wendy that was blocking that. And that was the block we needed to remove. And the llamas kept telling us, they all kept telling us that, that you have obstacles, you have obscurations, and you're not going to find them until you remove those. So, so it was our main focus. And that's why we got into the Vajrasattva cleansing so much, was to get those obstacles out of our way so we could see clearly. Right. And we we had to get the empowerment from a llama. We didn't have a llama. My mom found a llama in Florida. So we flew to Florida and went to that llama, got the empowerment, which was. Um, the Kempos, you know, have you the heard Kempos, of them? These guys, can you see? Yeah, them? yeah, yeah, they're big, yeah, they're big time. They're awesome. They're Exhaustion. Two, yeah, there's only one of them left uh, living, but the old man is the one who gave us the empowerment and he didn't speak any English at all. And so it was a, I think we tell the story in the book. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was wonderful. And these, all these llamas were so mm, willing to help us. Just totally. We would ask them and they'd, uh, you know, they'd open up to us. So it was amazing too, you know, that, I don't know, Wendy and I, maybe we seem stable, but we saw a lot of Europeans and Woo. Westerns in India that weren't so stable. And you can imagine sometimes some things coming from them that you might just, you know, think, oh, wait a minute, you know, where's this guy coming from? But that never happened with us. So um, anyway, that we we uh, <laughs> we spent five weeks in that village and we couldn't find the dad, the Namgo. We tried. We, we searched out all the people. We went to the offices, um, you know, settlement offices and talked to them. But somehow we just never came up. But it turned out that Tempest dad wasn't there that year. He was gone. And um, not that that still would have kept us from finding his name, but he wasn't there. And you never know when you're talking to the street people, you know, do you know someone named Namgal? Well, they might even have thought of Tashi, but thought he was gone. You know what I mean? So it wouldn't matter if he knew him anyway. Or I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying. Obscurations just winding through. Trying to you know, do this amazing thing that took everything to be lined up right for it to happen. So we were a little disappointed at that time, but that was also when we met the next Lama, which was Ringo Toku from the Paiola Ningua Monastery there, who was overly helpful. Can you see? <laughs> okay, he's holding him up. Can you oh, see yeah. him? Yeah. He's yeah. wonderful. He's passed away now also. Now, and um, I don't know if you know, um, if you knew, um, 
Oh shit! I think of his name right now. Yeah. It's okay. Anyway, he he. As soon as he found out what we were doing, because we ended up staying at the monastery, they had two beautiful rooms in front of the monastery, overlooking the street behind the gate, and they were five dollars a night. Bathroom. And they were so nice, clean, and uh, we ended up staying there the whole time when we would go back. We'd get those same rooms, and we became pretty good friends with them. And we also, but they had a shop where they made everything. They made carpets, tonkas, everything you can think of. And we bought a yes. lot of things from them, you know, to bring back to America. And I'll just throw it in now. But we got in the habit of bringing things back because it was easy to sell. And we could support some of our trip over there by bringing back carpets and tonkas. And, you know, we learned how to stuff our bags. And at that time, you could have 70, 70 pounds, two bags each of 70 pounds. So we'd bring back 210 bags pounds of carpets and everything uh, from you know so anyway we became good friends through that but he didn't care too much about the commercial side he was a wonderful um uh, rinpoche and the other thing was i'm not going to say anything bad about the other monasteries but what i'm going to say about ringo Tolko is good when that dark came not one of his monks left the compound they weren't in the he was all, like they you couldn't yeah. believe and his they were like you know that's how we would run a monastery. He was strict and uh, it was wonderful, you know, the, the, that he was able to hold that together. Because what's happening with the monks over there now is they're exposed to TV, to movies, to cell phones. And it's a little drifty for them to be total in the old school monetary, monastery situation. Right. When they've got headphones and, uh, you know, they're playing video games on their Apple phone that their sponsor bought them. <laughs> it's hard to stay focused. But he took us in right away and was willing to do anything. And um, so, you know, he offered his help from then. And then he also told us about uh, Shakya Trizen, that he could find the names, but ended up, we sent a letter and that never happened. But we also had a thing with the Taisitu, who also, you know, is a Karmapa's traveling mate. He's one of the highest four, let's say, out of the Tibetan lineage. And he wasn't able to help us either, although he was real sweet to us and real nice. And uh, we became kind of friendly with he him. He told us anything's possible. Yeah. And we say that phrase probably more than any other phrase <laughs> to this day. Well, yeah, one time we asked him a question. He said, well, anything's possible. Anything's possible. Uh, Winnie and I still to this day will quote that when we come to this, like, you know, a funny. point where. And his monastery is uh, actually... Well, you don't want to walk there because of the Panthers, but it's in walking distance from our, from from our, our village. village. But we were highly uh, uh, guided not to do that, had to always to walk take there, a yeah. taxi. What followed from there is a, a series of correspondences back and forth between Lama Dawa, Lama Samton, and yourselves, and one more trip. And uh, Ringo Tolko. Yeah, one more trip. Yeah. Now we left there not knowing anything. Yeah. We left there after the five weeks. We got in the car and we were going home. And then we didn't know any more than anything. Devastated. So we Lamadawa came back to San Diego. So we went and saw him again. Told him we went. And we went there. We couldn't find couldn't him. Couldn't find him, you know. And he knew then that we had found the girl. So he was all thrilled we found the girl. And he said, Well, you should be able to find the boy. So he did another reading. Yeah, he said, well, maybe he's moved. Maybe he died. We don't know. Let's let me, see. Let me explain his reading, too, because it is different and wonderful. And also, he's died now, and that that um, that practice has not been handed down. It's gone now. But he did a mirror divination. He actually looked into a mirror. And we could see, we watched him when he did his thing, and the mirror he had it stuck in a little bowl of rice. He didn't have much on his little altar at all, but a few things. 
but he did his whole ritual, you know, whatever it is he does, where he can see. And then we saw him looking at the mirror, writing the words down as he was reading them. Now, we never really saw the words on the mirror because he was in front of us. And, but we did see him doing this the whole way. And before he did that, he would do this really intense practice where you could see him transitioning from this guy to being in somewhere else where he you, received yeah, it. Yeah, you couldn't. You know, yeah, they, he wasn't there anymore. He they was, call it something. We don't know what yeah, it is, but you know, I don't know the name of it. Name but for yeah, the he, he was passed down from his father and I think from the grandfather too. But it ended with him. Um, so anyway, he told us that Andy was there. Yeah. And that we saw him. But he, he said, but we didn't touch him. But he said, he and we there. didn't recognize him because of our obscurations. Right. Nine. So. We, it took some time for us to go back, maybe even a year. I'm not sure. There was a long time. I well, we had, for to make, us to get, we had to make, had to make money. money again. And then we had to go get new visas because our weren't good for that time. And uh, we went back. And then we were there almost six weeks and still didn't find them. And that's when we got to this point that you were asking about. About It was actually Ringo Tolku and Lama Dalla and Lama Sompton emailing back and forth. And what happened prior to that is when we told, we called Lama Dog from India. This is the second time when we're there for the six weeks. The second time, it was getting like four weeks down the line, and we realized that we're not finding them, and we're going to have to leave again. So we contacted Lama Dawa and told him, and he said, you have to do this. Or did we already know it when we went there about the soap? Did we already know? No, that? no, the soap. No, came he from said you've got to do. He said you've got to do this certain soap, and you Rico Toko has, has to be, to be the master. 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 He said then you guys will have dreams, and the dream will point the way to the boy. And he said Ringo Toko has the power to do this. So we did that, and we were supposed to have the dreams. Well, you read, I had crazy dreams. I had seven dreams one night, five the next, three the next. And he doesn't ever dream. I never dream, but none of them were well, saying anything about Andy. And I went to Regal Talk every day and nothing happened. So they started writing back more and more. And, and meanwhile, that, I was in my room doing my 100,000 Vajrasafas. I was circumambulating the big money wheels, you know, at the crack of dawn and at night and anytime I could with the old women of the village and uh, basically just doing practice. I just sat in that room doing that, the practice, trying to invoke Andy and to clear the, clean the, I was cleaning. And John Philip and I added to that because we'd go to the snooker hall for hours so she could do the practice. Yeah, right. They were so helpful. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So should we continue the story? Please, yeah. Okay, so we decided that it didn't look like it was going to happen, but we still had Lama Dawan Sompton and Ringo Toka writing back and forth. But there was a problem with the emails. Um, I mentioned that at that time, we had to go to Dharamsala to do an email. It had it was so bad you couldn't believe it. But Ringo Tolko had managed to get an email thing in his monastery, so they were able to email back and forth to Lama Dalai Lama. So, so we went to Dharamsala because it looked like we were going to leave again without finding the boy. I told Ron I wasn't leaving. And um, we went there to buy a few things and just kind of to finish it off and to, to things to take back home. And um, that's the night. Now I gotta back up. Our the Vajrasava we do is the tantric version 
Okay, and it's a little different than not the tantric version. But we imagine during our, our chanting, and it's a long hundred syllable mantra, so it takes quite a while to accumulate a hundred of them. 20 minutes. So um, our concentration is that we imagine our uh, illness to be blood and pus that we disperse from our body while we're chanting. And we, we believe our, um, our um, what's the other one? The scorpions. And no, no, that's, the, that's not it. What's the second thing? There's another one. So your blood and pus. Soot. Oh, yeah, your soot. We imagine soot leaving our body, and that's the form of karma. So we're doing this chant. We've got the energy coming from Vajrasattva through our head, this clean, pure white light. And as it flows through our body, it pushes these things out of our body. It pushes the suit out. If we concentrate on that, and that resets our karma, and it pushes out the other. Well, the third thing is are your obscurations. And our obscurations form in the form of scorpions, of, of spiders, spiders wasps. and wasps. So we imagine the light coming into our body and all our obscurations becoming these scorpions, wasps, and spiders and them being flushed out of our body, uh, purifying us. So that's a practice we've been doing for a couple of years. So we come back to our hotel. We had gone up to Mikhail Gans where, where the Dalai Lama is and bought things, but we went back to our hotel, which was at the bottom, maybe half hour away. Norbalinka. Norbalinka, which is an extension of the Dalai Lama's temple. You know, Norbalinka is the one they had. It's like in, his summer, it's, it's summer retreat. Summer retreat center. It's kind of a mock of that. Yeah. Real nice. Built just like it. So we we get there. I'm paying the taxi. I have to get changed. And Wendy and Jiangsu go up to our room. And when I walk in, the manager is carrying out this bowl. And he just left our room. So I walk in. And Wendy explains that this giant spider was on the wall. In the shower. In the shower. And I uh, see it, John Shiba went and got the manager. He came back with a cup, but it wouldn't fit in the cup. No way. It was too big to fit in the cup. So he went and got back a bowl. So he had this big old spider in I the bowl and he's taking board. it out of the room. So we're sitting there. And uh, so, okay, time goes by and I'm sitting there reading something. And then uh, this bug flies into my hair. This bug, as far as obscuration goes, it may be here, may not be there, but whatever. It flies into my hair, and Wendy combs it out, and when she combs it out, it flies over to the window and lands on the windowsill. So Wendy on walks up on the on the screen on the screen. So Wendy walks over to shoo it out of the wind of the because the screens are kind of open. You know, the, in India, and the building, the windows, maybe screens, maybe fit, right. maybe they don't latch. But whatever, you know, it's like that. So the screen was open and the bug got out. But when she went over there, a scorpion ran across the windowsill and as jumped I, on the as floor. As I leaned over to switch the bug <laughs> off of the screen, this black scorpion just runs right across the windowsill that I'm leaning on. I'm like, oh my God, but I have I had the cup. I had yeah, actually she had the cup that I she was trying to bug in a cup from his hair. Okay, that's what it was. I combed it out and I combed it into this cup and put the cardboard on it took it over and when i flung it out it stuck to the screen then i leaned over to push it off the screen when the scorpion came well, i still had the cup and i was like frantically trying to get the scorpion in the cup but it fell it knew its way it fell off the windowsill and ran right into a hole in the corner and even though we tried to prod it out of there we couldn't so we had to sleep knowing that the scorpion was in the room so some a little more time goes by and then we realized this swarm of wasps had, had come into the room. And they were all around the, the lights and everything. So Wendy turned all the lights off. And me and John Shuba, Wendy, we opened the screens and we got them all out of there. 
And then we locked those screens. We locked them, locked the windows, we locked it. everything. <laughs> so, so we're sitting there and then all of a sudden we realize, whoa, wait a minute. We just had this spider, the scorpion and these wasps. Those are the things that mm. we imagine our obscurations to be when we're cleansing our bodies. They're manifesting. So it was the manifestation. What else could it be? Somehow those things were out of our body and manifested. So we see it. We're going, whoa, that's pretty cool. But so we go back to our rooms and that's the night I had the dream. And I woke up in the morning and I kind of fell back asleep. But I explained it really wasn't a sleep state either. It was this weird dream state. And I was actually in the dream. And the dream was right outside our room was the main street. And I was walking behind Andy. He was there walking. He was in his, his snowboard jacket, then one his jeans. He was in his favorite clothes. And I was walking about maybe eight foot behind him, actually walking right in front of our room on that street where we were, in front of the monastery. So at that point, now I'm going to tell you my dream. I followed him into town and he turned left. There's a... There's only one street in town. We call it Main Street. We call it Main it's Street. It's a little dirt calls street. It Main street. This, this street has <laughs> been there for thousands of years. It's a little dirt road that runs through the hills. The real Main Street, the highway is way down the hill a little bit. But we call it Main Street. But besides that, the only other street really in the village is one that splits the village. And there's different, uh, um, what do you call it, groups from uh, from Calm. And they're kind of separated that way. The Degay is here, the Nanshin are here. So that street separated them. So the it's a main street, but the only one. And then right down that main street also, as I explained in the book, is where we found our, our diner. When we went to town, we had to eat. And there was one um, restaurant in town that had screens on the windows. And it was monsoon season. So, the, so this was perfect. And she said, Ben said she'd cook all our food. And that was right down that street. So that was as far as I had been down that street. But Andy turned down that street and I followed him just to the restaurant. But then he turned right on another street past the restaurant that I'd never been on before. And I followed him down and that street dead ended. It dead ended at a gate that went into a property. And then there was a path that went to the left. And then I thought I caught up with him. You know, I kind of hurried to catch up with him there. I wasn't too far behind him. And he turned down the path. And then he the path curved again to the right. It actually went around this property that was sitting where the gate was. And then down to the left were all the little, um, what would you want to call them? Um, the people where the people live, what would you call them? Mm -hmm. They're little bungalows. Yeah. Right? Tons of bungalows where the Tibetans live. And um I caught up to Andy, I thought I might lose him, and he walked down one of those little trails into the bungalows and he stopped. So I caught up with him and I did catch up with him. I caught up to where he went down and I stood there and I'm looking at him and he's looking over this fence and then he disappears. He just disappears. So I go, whoa. So I, uh, at that point, you know, I was awake or whatever. And I told Wendy, I said, well, I just had a, this thing. I was following Andy through town. So we got dressed and everything. And John Chief usually came at eight o'clock in the morning. We'd eat, have tea and then get breakfast and stuff. We'd start our day, but he had a room next door to us. We always tried to get him his own room when we could. And at five dollars, it was a deal. Right. You know. So anyway, um, I told Wendy, I have to go. I have to follow Andy. So I, I took the walkie-talkie yeah, with me. Exciting. We had walkie-talkies. So I got dressed and I and I I went down. I went the exact same path. I, fought, I went down to where the, the road turned to the left. I went to our restaurant. I turned right on that path, that one I'd never been on before. And sure enough, I came to a gate, and there was a little path to the left. I followed it around. It was exactly like in my dream. And I had never been to that part of the, of the village before. 
And so I walked down to where Andy disappeared. And at that point, I was looking around and I thought, well, I'm going to look where he, towards the direction he was looking. And there was a fence there, about a four foot fence around a little house. So I walked over to it and there were two boys playing there in the yard. So I thought, well, this got to be Andy. You know, what, what else? So the lady came out. She couldn't speak English. So I got John to a walkie talkie and I told him, John to come on, you got to come here right now. So I was able, there was a little, you could sight out to the main road in between the buildings. And I told him, just walk down the main road, look, keep looking through until you see me. Well, he did. He showed up and then he came over. So he talks to the lady. Well, it turns out it's not the mom, it's the grandma. And she doesn't know anything. She doesn't know how old they are. She doesn't know their birthday. She doesn't know anything. She said, go to the school. So we said, okay. So we went back home and we had breakfast, but we were building some stairs for that Tibetan family we had friended. So we had to go build another step on the stairs before we could do anything because, you know, to go to the school, because that's where we were headed to go to the school to find out about these two boys. So we finished that and we, we go to the school and we get up there and the headmaster's not there. He's gone. And the guy tells us, you know, I said, well, do you have a list of the kids here? You know, the kids in the school? And he said, no, we don't have anything. I said, okay. So we leave. And before we get too far out, you know, and once we get out of the school gate, this guy's pulling on my arm. And he said, the headmaster just called. He wants you guys to come back tomorrow. So we said, okay, well, we'll come back tomorrow. Well, the next day was the same thing. We had to pour another step. And we'd also gone down to email Lama Sompton. So it took two hours. We had to drive that hour to get to an email place. And, and so the, we got to the school, they were, you know, it's two o'clock, they're closing at three or something like that. You know, we got there, but there wasn't a lot of time. The headmaster was there. We got up there and we started talking and I told him, you know, that we're looking for our boy. And I told him, oh, first of all, we told him, well, we have these two boys. We think one of them might be Andy. So he said, okay. So he says, let's go. You stay here. So he took John Chip because John Chip remember what they look like down to the schoolroom, got the two boys, talked to the teacher. And then, so I'm sitting there waiting. Of course, I'm anxious, but I'm just fiddling through magazine, just waiting. I hear I'm him, back in the room doing my vatrasafas like mad. So um, I hear him come to the service and they're laughing. So they get in. I said, what's so funny? He said, those aren't boys. They're, they're girls. both girls. And I went, what? And he said, no, no. He said, I had to ask the teacher. They look like boys. He said, but they're So then I said, oh, God. I said, well, do you have a list of all the kids he said oh yeah i have it right here so he pulls out this big notebook and it's got all the kids in the schools plus their parents names next to it so i we assume since andy and bobby died the same time that they would be born the same time if the bardo's true at 49 days i mean it's not exactly day to day but we figured so we took kelsey's birthday and i started checking off the kids that were born the closest to her birthday and there was like six of them and I'll throw this in just for fun. The one that was the closest, I said, where's this boy? And he said, oh, that's my boy. And I said, that's your boy? The headmaster said, yeah. And he said, do you want to see him? And I said, yeah. I said, can I see him? He said, no, he's with his mom. He won't be back until February. So he said, do you want a picture? And I said, sure. And before I knew what happened, he was out the door, climbing down the stairs. He ran home and got me a picture. He must have lived right across from this court. Well, I thought I was probably in his pocket. Uh, yeah, I thought it brought it right back. Anyway, so I had the picture. So I wrote down, there were six of them born like within a month of Kelsey or so. I wrote down all their names. And he said, look, and their parents' names. And he said, look, he said, uh, you, well, the school bell just rang. He said, you go to the kindergarten room right now. He said, if you want to find out about these boys. 
to a junk food, but I get over the kindergarten room, and this is another funny story. The kids are, what, four years old, four or five? And um, they were already getting their stuff. They had already started moving towards the doors. There was a little disruption in there. And that teacher told them to get against the wall. And so she picked them out. She called them out off of my list. And each one stepped out. And we looked at them and thought, you know, well, we're not really feeling anything. So one boy wasn't on, wasn't there. Out of the five we picked out, he wasn't there, Tempo. And we said, well, where's this boy? And they said, well, he... He's sick and he stayed home today. So we said, okay. And then, then the lady said, well, his mom works at the nursery. Well, that's when John Chu thought the nursery meant the Red Cross building and was there. We went there he, and then he went in and said, I'll find the mom. And then he came back and said, no, this nursery. I said, I know John Chu, this is a nursery. They take care of the little kids. So we start walking. Someone told us where it was. We start walking down the street towards it. And this lady, the bed lady walks past us and she stops us. He says, what are you guys doing? And Which we is said, really rare because they're so shy. They're not likely yeah. to come up and just Yeah, they don't usually you. initiate conversations. They are really a shy people. So she said, what are you guys doing? We said, we're going to the nursery. We're looking for the nursery. And she said, well, I work at the nursery. She said, but it's closed. And we said, well, we're looking for this lady, Chimmy Choden. We had the mom's name. But oh, wait a minute. I missed the most important thing. Okay. Okay, I'll tell him okay, you tell. So the best part is when he writes all these names down, and then he's real excited because now we've got some names and some guidance. And we're we're really getting like urgent because it's almost time to leave, even though I said I told her I'm not leaving. But uh, he calls me on the walkie talkie and he's like, oh, yeah. And he's reading off these names. And he goes, yeah, well, I'm waiting for John Chu from the Red Cross building. I'm right. just standing around waiting for him to come out. So he's giving me an update and he's uh, says, yeah, and there's this um Tempa Rimpel and the parents are Chimmy Choden and Tashi Namgal. And I and at the same time, I was like, Namgal, that's our name. That's the who we're looking for. That's got to be the kid. And uh, he's he, he realized it at the same time too. So then we knew we were we were on the right now, path. And I'm dumbfounded because I actually wrote the name down and didn't recognize it. But that's how obscured you are, you know, and how our whole. But, thing but even to back that up, I. I had written the the headmaster's boy's name down and headmaster, and I hadn't realized that either. And he's standing right there. So nothing was computing for some reason, you know, but I had the information, right? So that's when Wendy said, no, she said, that's the name. So then I was kind of shocked. So John Chu walks out. I said, John Chu, look at this. He said, I know. And I said, well, why do you say something? He said, well, I thought you already knew. You know, I assumed you saw that. <laughs> so So anyway... The lady from the nursery, Dokar, she said, well, I can take you to Chimmy. She lives right here. So she walked us up to Chimmy's and uh, we told Chimmy that, you know, I, I called Winnie and told her, get down here right now. And John Choops, I said, we're going to find the boy. I John Choops was waiting in the street for her. And she went right around the corner and brought Tempa back. And then there he was. That was, you know, our first sighting of him. And that started it. But it was an amazing And we knew immediately. Story. And, and I had told Ron before that I really felt like Temple was going to need to go to the dentist and that we were going to need to build him a house. And he was like, what? Yeah, Wendy has visions. Yeah, I do. So uh, I don't have any control over him. It's not like I have to do it at will, but they just happen. And uh, so sure enough, when we found him, he had his mouth all messed up and he had to go to the dentist. So we had 
we had like what five days no, left. I don't think that many. I Four days 30. left. So we had to do get him to the dentist, look at their property that had the shack on it, uh, make some plans of what we were going to do when we came back. And and then I was uh, and we bonded with Tempa. It was not yeah. not a problem. It was Tempa. It was Andy for sure. <laughs> Even though he was in a very frustrated situation because his mouth was hurt so bad, and he was also being weaned which is a very uncomfortable position for, for any child. That's a very bad time for him. So, uh, but it was okay. Once, once I reached out and told him to come here and I had some chapstick to put on his lips that were so cracked and dried from this mishap dental thing that happened to him. Uh, as soon as I touched him, he just melted and fell into my arms and, and fell asleep for like, six hours, four hours, yeah, four hours, like four hours. He was just passed out in my arms. He just passed out because he was so happy. We finally found him. And then that was pretty much it for Wendy. From then on, she was in Giama and she was the care mother. And, you know, he's in Giama and I'm in Giama. And that's it. That was pretty wonderful. Yeah. So we uh, made arrangements to communicate with him and um, we Send him money. Even two days later, we did take him to the dentist and we gave him a little money and we told her we'd take care of him. We yeah. said, don't worry, we'll take care of the house. We'll fix the house. And uh, which turned out we re rebuilt the whole tore the whole house down and rebuilt the whole thing. Really nice house. Nicer than any house I live in here. Because all the stuff there is so nice. So you get the stoves from Switzerland and it's all a really nice uh, you know, uh, porcelain sinks and stainless steel, six foot long stainless steel kitchen sink. So yeah, we were able to really score. Uh, in Delhi and drive everything there that washer dryer they have, which is unheard of at that time. So it's nice. We hooked them up really good. Have you been to India? No, never. Um, uh, it's its own thing. I, I, say, <laughs> I say when you get to India, what greets you is your karma. Yeah, with you step <laughs> off the plane, your karma is there to greet yeah. you. That's why I'm avoiding it. Yeah, well, if you feel that way, you go always go with your first thought. <laughs> Last thing I need is to face my karma. At least, at least I'll avoid that for a little while if I can. Right. Well, I used to be uh, of the mind, you know. Hey, I'm I'm able to live it out in relative comfort. So bring it on, you know. What I don't want it sugar coated. I would just bring it on and. Uh, now that I'm a little older, I'm like, maybe I could drag a little of it into my next life. <laughs> this is getting exhausting. So I want to add that there's two questions that seem quite obvious. Number one, if we are aware that there are 14 Dalai Lamas and the Tibetans actually found their teachers and stuff, why wouldn't we go directly to them for help? Which never entered our minds. You know, we were handed off from one Lama to another is what, how it happened, not because of anything of our choosing. So that's one thing that just comes up. And then the other thing that comes up is why wouldn't you just go to the schools and find out about the children? But the answer to that is truthfully, we only have the father's name. And so it wasn't a likely thing that we would do, even though we did go to the one school and, and you know, ask the other school, not the oh, one We did look at. at a lot of kids. So, oh yeah, we did look at a lot of kids and stuff. But it was, you know, it all comes back and the llamas have all agreed with it to it that it was our obscurations. We had to clear something inside of us to make it so that could happen. And it was that last Vajrasafa I did. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you so much for telling that that story. And of course, there's so much more in the book uh, that you know we, we don't have time to go into. I'm curious. Now that's ten years ago. No, yes. not ten years ago. Actually, uh, fifteen years ago. What? How long ago oh, was that? Found them was twenty years ago. Yeah, about twenty. Years. Oh, wow. Uh, we were with them till they were twelve. Since then, we haven't spent any time with either of them. But we talk to them. We're in communication with them, uh, really, almost daily. Yeah, we watch them grow up and everything. And we did give Tempa's family that money, one hundred fifty dollars for ever for the whole eighteen years. Yeah, and you know, in India, I mean, that's. I'm not saying they didn't need any more money than that, but that certainly is sufficient to get you by. You can live real comfortable. That's why the monks are $25 that, you know, for their room and board, it doesn't cost them any more than that. Um, I was curious what uh, your relationships are now with Kelsey and Tempa, and also how they themselves, as they grew older, viewed the situation. You want to tell about Kelsey not being able to tell anybody? Yeah, well, Kel- okay. okay, first but, of all, okay. they love us, yeah, to the end of the world right now. Crazy, even love. though they haven't seen us, they are nuts for us. And every now and then, one of them will write us a letter and tell us, you know, how much they love us feelings. and how much they miss us. We are and communicate with them. We talk to Tempa almost every morning uh, on the messaging, and Kelsey. She's busy. She's here in America. She's a busy girl. We get her Facebook thing. You know, we every week or so we'll write her, but she's so sweet and loving. And what they think of us is unbelievable. And they're so thankful and, we found them. Yeah. And not so much what we did for them, but yeah. the fact, the bonding and that from before. But you can tell about Timba and about Kelsey telling people yeah. about so the situation. Kelsey calls one day. Oh, yeah. Well, Tempest totally accepted. Everybody knows that he was Andy and it's auspicious and everybody is so happy and delighted that we found him. And, you know, they're happy, we're happy and everybody's happy. But that's the way the Tibetans are. It's just a done deal. Of course, you every they all know they were someone else before they were born into this body and that they will be someone else after. And they're probably living with all of their people that used to be, you know, I mean, it's all just a, a, a completely understood thing and in their daily life. Well, Kelsey is in Florida. So she uh, is, she was always told to keep it, you know, quiet to not really tell anybody because everyone's quite Christian Baptist, whatever uh, they are, they're, they're like that. And they don't believe in reincarnation. So she has her very best friend, real bestie. And you know how it is when you're a kid and you have your bestie and then you start telling the secrets and stuff. So her girlfriend's having a sleepover and they're up on her bunk bed and they're talking and Kelsey decides, I think she'll be cool with it. So she says, hey, you want to know something really far out, a secret? And she's like, yeah. And she said, I know who I was in my previous life and I know who my parents were. And she's like, oh god you're going to hell we had to call the priest you have to be exorcists you can't believe this you have we have to change your mind you know this is like and he she called us the next day and she said she's god, frustrated oh she said tempa is so lucky he she said not that you want everybody to go oh cool but just the fact he can be who he is she said here i really have to kind of hide who I was, especially if they find out I was a boy before and now I'm a girl and that's all weird and everything's weird there with anything besides, you know, you're going to heaven or hell. 
So that was funny. So there's your two sides. Yeah, there's your two sides. And she said she'd really like to go to Tempest Village someday and just be able to walk around and be the reincarnation of Bob. Have they ever met? Kelsey and Tempa. Oh, they've talked on the phone a couple times, and the message uh, is almost daily. Yeah, they they have. I see they're on these. I see that they write back and forth. Yeah, and the Facebook and yeah. stuff. They they communicate with each other, and they really want to meet each other. But they know, uh, you know, they're they're in different worlds, and we don't have the money anymore. We lost all our money. So we're just that's really why we haven't seen them for 10 years, but we yeah. understand that the energy is what it is and there's a reason for it. Yeah. It hasn't been 10 years, maybe seven years. Yeah, but and we but you know, we we accept all that. We have perfect. to go on with our life. But it sure hasn't changed any way they feel about us or that we feel about them. No, whether we give them money, don't give them money, it doesn't matter. They're still as completely devoted to us as they ever were. Yeah, it's pretty amazing though. Pretty amazing how much they loved us from day one and how it has transpired all this time and everything that's happened to them that really must run nothing much has changed but i've always felt we've had this heavy love affair the four of us when they were alive but i've always felt that they um what they observed of us while they were in the dark and the bardos they realized how much we really loved them right and I think that's part of what shows they and carried they, that into this life. And they realized how much they really loved us. And uh, I, we tell the story of when we had Kelsey's family come out here because we left their rooms alone and everything. And it was getting. When Annie and Harvey died, we didn't touch anything. We didn't touch anything. We wanted the, if they came, if they showed up, we wanted them to be able to go in. And uh, we thought it was time to have them here. So we brought the whole family. This is when we had money. We brought the whole family out and we got them a, a hotel at this little resort near us. And they were all doing their thing. And then Ron was able to pull Kelsey away and bring her to our house. Well, as soon as she got to the house, she knew to run up the stairs, go through the front door and go through the curtain to where Bob's room was. She went right there into Bob's room and she's like, oh, the tie-dyed peace sign on the hanging on the piece of fabric, you know, mine, mine. And then she's all, where is my pencil collection? Because Bob collected these really cool pencils that did things or had stone gemstones in them or everywhere he went, he'd get from the gift shop, the pencil. And uh, she, well, where's my pencil collection? Where's my pencil collection? So she knew, you know, immediately. And it was all so happy. And she was sitting up on the bunk bed and Ron and I were right, you know, at the, where we could talk to her looking up a little bit, but still right there with her. And Ron told her, oh, so this is okay, huh? You're Kelsey now and every, everything's good now, huh? And, and the energy was all so happy and everything. And oh my God, did it ever sink to the lowest low ever? And she just said, no, no, you miss your, I miss my mom and dad so much. And we were like, okay, but we're here now. <laughs> you know, he tried to get that back and it was really intense. So she'll go right there. And then it tells in the book how Ron then took her to where she died. She was amazing all the things she recognized. And she told it really him. was one after another, after another. She was really something. Yeah. The llamas told us something. He said, she's crazy. She, she recognized more stuff than the llamas do. 
So, you know, now Tempa was the other way around, but we don't know for sure because he was speaking Tibetan. And John Chu and was supposed to, to tell us. We kept, everything. Him, we kept on John Chu, tell us whatever. And he would say all these words and John Chu would tell us like three words that he said. And we're like, no, he had to say more than that. You guys were talking for 10 minutes. So we don't know what slipped by us, but yeah. there were a couple of times he said things. Yeah, we, we were walking down the path with Tempa and John Chu said, how come he keeps calling me bro? We're like, John Choop, that's what we're talking about because Andy called everybody bro. <laughs> hey, bro. What's up, bro? So there may have been more, but yeah. we're, I mean, we're totally convinced that oh, yeah. Tim was Andy. Um, the other thing is Kelsey being a girl and being in her situation in Florida, she's still powerful and doing, you know, that was quite powerful. But Tempa hasn't changed a bit from Andy. He looks like him. He's the same height. He has the same demeanor. Um, he's so sweet as can be. I mean, he same just exact changed, body. He just changed the body. He went out of one and checked back into another one that was just the same. And it's obvious with him. You know, Kelsey's lives with a typical American families. You know, how many bicycles has she had and everything? Tempa has every single thing we've ever bought him from when he was two. He still has them. And it's not that much. There's a few, it's in his room. But they're they treasures. They aren't into the material yeah. world like we are. Other, You know, there's more important things that, you know, doing, doing your life, being happy, being at peace, all the things that he's experienced in that. Thank you very much for going into such detail here on, about this story. I'm curious, perhaps to finish, of course, having had as much experience with the after-death state in the ways you've been describing, you know, uh, some so it's said about certain lamas like the Karmapas and so on that they can decide where they're going to come back and when and so on. Uh, right. Wondering if you had any yourselves plans going oh, so, forward. So funny you ask because actually we have a plan. <laughs> I have a plan uh, because we we both had previous husband, previous wife, we both had kind of nightmare situation. And then we got together and we were both like, hey, if this isn't going to be great, it's not going to be. And that kind of cultivated our relationship. That's great. And uh, and we're both very compatible. And so um, I told I, we have the plan that in our next life, when we die, um, my mother and father are going to have me, his mother and father are going to have him and, you know, I'm sorry, but for some reason they're going to end up single and they're going to get married and then we're, we already have it. I'm going to be little step and he's going to be big step and we will be living in the same house and that way I can make sure his baseball uniform's clean when she he needs it. She thinks she can train me better. <laughs> he thinks it's so But so I make sure he doesn't <laughs> eat too many hot dogs at the picnic and throw up and stuff, you know, just take better care of him than, uh, and, and get, you know, and then we won't know. It'll all be very innocent at, at the beginning and we'll be really good buddies and he'll take me in his car and we'll go camping together. And then, you know, when I'm 14, 15 or something by the campfire, the light bulbs will go off and we'll realize who we are and and um laugh and cry and that'll be it quick funny story for you <laughs> so we've already deducted that for sure we were tibetan lamas before or tibetan practitioners or whatever that we knew about all this when we came into this body we just didn't pop in here white guys that know stuff so we pretty much accepted we've been tibetans and also, if you take that philosophy, you know you've been everything. 
but recently been practicing Tibetans and we carry that over. So I told Tempa the other day, I said, well, here we go, Tempa. I said, I'm a Tibetan born as a white guy and you're a white guy born as a Tibetan. Pretty funny. And also in our village, just uh, real quick, uh, there, there's the Kampa division and the Amdo division and all the, the, the Dege division. And uh, he's run, because we built the house, Ron had to be pretty, you know, like had to teach him how to build this house and how important it was to do things a certain way. So he had to get kind of heavy, which was really shocking to everyone to see somebody be, you know, no, you have to do this right now this way. And uh, then I'm very gentle and kind. So we immediately, all the Tibetans, when they, even when they meet us, they know he's a Kampa man and I'm a Tibet, I'm an Amdo woman. And the old saying goes that only an Amdo woman can tame a Kampa man. So that's, uh, that's just kind of a funny little Tibetan thing that, uh, that everyone seems to recognize and tell us. So fascinating. I think we could probably talk for several more hours about all the details here and all the things that are still in the book and the things you didn't even put in the book. But if people are interested, whereabouts can they find out more about the story and, and look into getting a copy of the book? Okay, it's only available right now in America. And it's, it's pretty easy to remember. It's reincarnationstory.website. And the book's available there for now. Um, we're working with Tempa to get it in India, and we're talking to uh, Amazon, but I'm not so hot on Amazon, even though we might do something like an uh, ebook that could be sold in Europe. We're, we're trying, we're trying to find like the that. way to do it where we're not going to get totally ripped off, basically. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not very easy to find that way. We've been, we've been on a lot of these Buddhist sites and stuff advertising the book, and a lot of people are over in England and Australia and Germany, and you know they're asking where they can get the book. But and it, really, yeah, it costs really $25 can't. just to post. To post one. We book. sent one to Denmark, one to India, and one to Vietnam, and they were all $25 a piece. Yeah, so that's the basic fee, uh, which is quite pricey. So we're trying to find, and if you know, uh, Amazon Europe or something because we're comfortable being our own website here in America but in order to get it to the Euro European side across the pond we need to uh, establish something there and we don't know so if you know if there is just an Amazon Europe or some other distributor that could take this on and work with us. We're completely open to it. We just seem like we just run into closed doors every time we try to investigate something to get our book to Europe. However, we do want to put it on tape. And um, what was the other medium you were talking? No, no, we're going to put it yeah. on audio tape, and that would be a good one too because that's downloadable. And we do have this great opportunity too because we wrote the book in two voices. You get to hear both of our voices, which is. You know, that's kind of a little extra add-on to just listen yeah. to one guy reading this We've book. done a couple readings, so. uh, uh, not that you can have any kind of uh, book signing or anything, which is really hindering our our distribution of this because you can't have any gatherings, but some uh, people had 10 people uh, socially distanced and they had us do a reading and we both got to read and they, they didn't want us to stop, but we couldn't read the whole book. So uh, that seem to be real popular so we think if we'd make a tape that'll be good so we're looking into the equipment that we need to do that 
and that'll be one medium that we can get out there. I wish you the best of luck with that. It's certainly a page turner. Wendy and Ronnie Barry, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, so thank much. you, and nice meeting you. Oh, so that was great. To meet I'm glad you. we found out about you. Yeah. From our good friend David Curtis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.